Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy this morning is... John Cass of johncastnews.com. John Cass, great to have you this morning. Oh, John, John's still getting himself together, pulling himself together, coming to the mic. Hey, Dan. There he is, johncastnews.com, the aforementioned. John, thanks for being with us. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, so we begin this morning, uh, of course, updating the massacre that occurred in Maine, in Lewiston, Maine. And uh, law enforcement had a press conference yesterday. Uh, The numbers got revised, as often happens when something is as uh, scaled as this attack was on the bowling alley and the the bar in Lewiston. 18 dead, 13 injured is what we heard from the governor of Maine, uh, Janet Wills. Uh, The... A suspect has been charged with eight degrees, uh, eight counts of first degree murder, that is. And the only reason it's not 18 is because at the time of the press conference, at least, they had not identified the other victims and informed their families. So that was in process. Now, uh, the suspect is still at large. And as you would suspect, there is a massive manhunt both on land and at sea because one of the uh, theories is that his 15 foot bayliner is missing and it that he may have um, uh, taken his boat onto Kennebec River which runs past Lewiston and um, you know be uh, trying to escape hide out between the river and the densely forested areas in that area of the country 312-642-5600 turnkey dot pro answer line 64636DA Turkey Dapro text line. Is he a, is he a true sportsman? I mean, is he a hunter and fisherman, trapper, yeah. that sort of thing? That's or that's just what a weekend guy. You know? From no, from no. Not only was he a, a, a firearm instructor, but he wasn't. He, according to neighbors, uh, guys that grew up with him, who are now talking to the press. Right. One guy who was a, a live right down from the family farm. I'm talking about the suspect's family farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, said. Uh, outdoorsman seen hunting deer he's he knows what he's doing he can hide in this densely forested areas uh, around the communities impacted um it's not going to be necessarily easy for law enforcement to pick him up uh, now coast guard is obviously on the job on the water but but obviously when you're talking about traversing this densely forested area i keep referring to it's a it's a lot a little bit more complicated particularly with somebody who knows the terrain Small and skip. is also and also can survive, yeah, can survive in the wild, if you will, at least for right. some time. Um, the the um, 
the other thing that's interesting too, just to separate it from the family, you know, there's a lot of questions that haven't been asked or perhaps haven't been contemplated. The answers haven't been contemplated yet because you just don't have the information about his mental state. There was the suggestion, I guess, made by his sister, the suspect sister, that he was looking for his ex when he rolled up on that bowling alley. Uh, okay, don't know. Um, so sister's still, trying to throw some mitigating circumstances in there. I, no, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't take it as mitigating. I, I would take it as I, my, my impression of what she said was. Uh, explanatory of searching for an explanation, but we don't even have context to that yeah. searching for his ex, obviously uh, for some sort of revenge. What, what's right. the backstory there? We, 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 we just, it's just all sort of hazy right now, but of course against um, uh, the haze and uh, the, all of the questions that people want to get answers to, to try to make whatever sense of this as possible to make sense of, you have Kamala Harris. Oh. Uh, she's the vice president of the United States. <laughs> yes, yes, seriously. Yeah. And uh, she uh, had the occasion to attend a state lunch yesterday with Prime Minister of Australia, who was passing through town, Anthony Albanese. And uh, she took that occasion to make this statement about the massacre in Maine. In our country today, the leading cause of death of American children is gun violence. Gun violence has terrorized and traumatized so many of our communities in this country. And let us be clear, it does not have to be this way. As our friends in Australia have demonstrated. And with that then, yeah, as our friends in Australia How did have they demonstrated. How did they demonstrate that? Uh, they demonstrated it after a, a massacre uh, in Port Arthur in 1996 with a massive mandatory, gun mandatory, right. uh, well, no, mandatory government gun buyback, which is the same thing as a seizure. It's like ba yeah. they basically eminent domain your gun. You're going to give us your guns, and we're going to give you market rate for them. That's what they did. They collected about 650,000 guns, and they put in uh, severe restrictions for Australians to own firearms in addition to banning semi-autos and auto, automatics, obviously, but semi-autos as well. That's what they did. So that's what Kamala is apparently referencing. I don't know what else she could be referencing. Uh, mandatory gun buyback for uh, the United States. What do you think of that? Well, it's a gun grab. People should, you know, they... they... You throw in mandatory gun buyback, it kind of confuses them. Basically, it's a gun grab. The government's grabbing the guns. And yeah. that's not going to fly here. Or I don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe we've been beaten up so much by these politicians that we just whimper and curl up in a fetal position and say, tread on me. Please tread on me, Kamala. With I your, don't think with so. With your high heels, tread on me. <laughs> I, yes. Uh, you're channeling Willie Brown, I think, but really? um, no, I, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen here. You, you don't really think that's going to happen here. No, I mean, in terms don't. of, in terms of, huh. if they made a, a, if they put this in actual proposal form, we, we're running on doing a mandatory gun buyback 
Here. for all semi-automatic weapons in America. You think if a Democrat candidate ran on that, if Biden-Harris ran on that, you think that would be popular? I'd like to teach her a language, okay, because I really respect her because of her fairy tales and her fantasies. Mm. So I'll give her a language to learn, ancient Greek. And here are the words I want you to say to me, Kamala. Molon la ve. Bring it on. Come and take them. Yeah, well, yeah, basically, right? That's a version of it. Uh, 312-642-5600, line. Um, talk about some of the victims here, too, and yeah. tell their stories. Yeah. Of this, I mean, we tell the stories of the victims in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, we want to tell some of the stories of the victims here, and also particularly those that uh, acted heroically to try to save others, as it almost invariably happens in these terrible uh, acts of domestic terror that we've had to pour over w- way too many times. Um, Bob Violet, a 76-year-old, was born and raised in Lewiston, avid bowler, retired uh, Sears mechanic who spent his retirement uh, essentially being uh, uh, setting up youth leagues, youth bowling leagues mm-hmm. that he and then he would. Uh, then he saved his money to buy. I, this goes into some detail. Saved his money to buy iPads to, you know, uh, to, to uh, video the kids so that you can he could help them be better bowlers. You know, here's what you're doing. You see what you're doing versus what you should be doing. All that kind of stuff. His wife also uh, got involved because this is a way they could spend time together in retirement. Um, he was killed. He was Bob among was. the first, I think. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, his wife, uh, Lucy, uh, of almost 50 years, was hurt. We do not know her status. Mm. Um, another uh, person killed, murdered, Tricia Asselin, part-time employee at the uh, Just-in-Time Recreational Center. Uh, and... Um, she was. Uh, she ran to try to help. She called. She was calling nine one one, and um, that's when the shooter shot her twice, killed her. That's what we understand, and um, the you know the comments coming in from those who knew her is that she was a very selfless, giving person, um, trying to do the right thing in that moment. Uh, Joey Walker is the manager at Semenji's Bar and Grill. One of the eight victims killed at that restaurant. His dad said that uh, his son died while trying to stop the gunman. He picked up a butcher knife. Uh, somewhere he has all that stuff by the bar. He tried to go at the gunman to stop him from shooting anybody else, but then he was shot and murdered. <sighs> Jordan Forest Park. Yeah, uh, did anybody ask the question, um, did anybody try to return fire? And the reason I mention that is uh, I think Maine has the highest percentage of gun ownership of all the states. I think it's 50% or higher. Uh, They're very liberal on rules. You can go into a bar or restaurant with a gun. You can't be intoxicated. Uh, Was there, were there signs on those two establishments? No, no firearms. I'm just, uh, just wondering. Yeah, I, that's we asked that yesterday. Thanks for the call, Jordan. We talked about Maine's laws, which um, shall issue over twenty-one. You don't need a permit to carry concealed if you're uh, uh, over twenty-one. Um, 
we don't know about the signage on those establishments. At least I haven't seen it reported. We don't know about uh, any return fire or attempted return fire. At least I have not seen that reported. Those are good questions. I'd love to know the answers to as well. Um, it, it could be. I mean, this was obviously planned. And, uh, you know, the uh, suspect allegedly left a suicide note back at his place uh, for his son. Um, so it's, you know, so the, the seemingly that was going to be death by, you know, suicide by cop. That right. was his plan here. Mm-hmm. But then that obviously wasn't his plan or that plan changed because he had an escape plan in his back pocket that he then executed. I don't know. But, I mean, it could be, too. It was bowling league night at the alley. You know, people are having fun and they're uh, enjoying each other's company and bowling. And this guy comes in and just opens fire. I mean, there's no, there's almost no time to react. He's, and, a, and how... he, he's a madman trained. Well, he's right. a trained and... madman. And, and most people are not on that kind of edge. You know? And and how and how long was he in there before he then went to the next location and did the same thing? I mean, these are all fair questions. We just don't know the answers. Ed and Glen Ellen. Hey Dan and John, um, I realize anything like this is a very fluid, quickly changing. But on my phone, the that eve, late that evening, I uh, didn't read the whole story. But the head, headline on the phone was "Breaking News: Twenty Dead." Or I, sorry, 22 dead, 50 injured. And so when I woke up the next morning and heard um, 18 and 12, and it keeps keeps changing all the time, but that 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 have, have to be first, even though the details may be a little scattered, is always a problem. Yeah, thanks for the call. I mean, they, they were all over the map. I, we reported, uh, you know, the reporting of 22 and 50 yesterday on the show too, but. News outlets, as Mike Scott reported yesterday, had any you know, 14 to 22. The number of injured varied. Um, Adrenaline kicks in and people lose it. Yeah, and, and trying to, you know, are you double counting? I mean, right. you know, just all of the, the mistakes you make when you're trying to get a handle of a, of, of a situation that is pandemonious, you know. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy this morning, John Cass, johncastnews.com, also the Chicago Wade Podcast. Hello. Uh, all right. 
All right, Edvard Monk, uh, tell us why you think uh, BLM Brandon is panic-stricken over the uh, infusion of migrants into the city and the planning as to how to accommodate them. I thought he's he's setting up these gimme-dat um, uh, developments, uh, yeah. like at 38th in California, you know, BLM Brandon's place, a gimme-dat development. It sounds, sounds like it'll be... Just perfectly fine. Because the residents, residents will get panicking. used to it. He's panicking. The the he has no plan. I mean, the plan is chaos, as Ted Dabrowski told you and me this week. And uh, it's just a it's just chaos, okay? And using the the CTU to stuff meetings and keep out com- community residents to stuff the meetings with your own people is not really smart politics in that it might get you over the hump one day, but the resentment builds. And what are you going to do with the people? The city's overwhelmed. The city has no plan, and these people are swamping it. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636DA, turnkey.pro. Text line, I note in your piece at johncastnews.com, you... Uh, had the occasion to talk to Paul Vallis about this, uh, who is Paul Vallis now taking up space at Illinois Policy Institute. Uh, and um, well, I talked I'm, to him about policy. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. So the policy uh, was was he an opponent of the sanctuary city designation? Did he did he run against that? I don't. I don't remember. I don't recall. I don't. Th- I don't. I don't think he did. If he but anyway, did, it go wasn't. Ahead. A, if he did, it wasn't a feature of his campaign. Look. No, it wasn't. Look, no. um, um, there's plenty to go around here, you know, what uh, opportunities that were missed. But to me, the main thing is that Brendan Johnson was selected because he was obedient. He was obedient to Tony Preckwinkle, boss Tony of the Cook County Board and chairman of the Democratic Party. And he was obedient to Stacey Davis Gates, the political director of the Chicago Teachers Union, the machine now in Chicago and both of these women are strong black women and they both wanted their you know pet now I'm sorry that Johnson can't handle it but I'm told that he's had he's suffering from panic attacks because he didn't realize how difficult the job would be and the job is difficult and he talked his way into it and now he's realizing that all eyes on Chicago in 2024 in the convention, Democratic convention here and Milwaukee convention in, uh, you know, just 90 miles away, Republicans. And everyone will be watching, and uh, he just can't. He, he realizes he's going to look bad. You know, the whole, like... Uh you know, co-mayor, he's, um, he doesn't have agency. He's Stacey Davis Gates's bitch. He's Tony's bitch, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I'm not so, I'm, I'm not so sure actually. Okay. Um, you know, it, he's it, his own man. He's really, <laughs> no, he's really no, but, his own no, man. Come no, on. no, no. But, but, but that misses the point. Point. The, the point is that these are dyed in the wool reds, all yes. of them. And, and, and so that includes him. Yes. And so everybody plays a different role. I mean, you think, I mean, I, I know, I know from people that have interacted with Brandon Johnson that, that he 
um, you know, he's never seen a balance sheet. He has he has no idea what he's looking at. But but you think Stacey Davis Gates does? You think Stacey Davis Gates pours over balance sheets at CTU uh, or CPS? You think Tony Preckwinkle does at County? You think these are uh, these are otherwise you know, some these are mad geniuses in the Cook County Board President's office and and running CTU and and Brandon Johnson's the only useful idiot. They're all sort of useful idiots because they're uh, they're ideological central planners that have limited skill sets. Perfect. But there's no there's no mad genius here. There's no genius of any kind here. I didn't say there was, but the the fact is that they're all going down. In this, you know, and they'll take Chicago with them. They'll destroy lives. They'll destroy careers. They'll destroy a great city and a great county because of their Bolshevik nonsense. Well, and yeah. the people of Chicago, the people of the suburbs, you've been harping about this for a long time now. The women, uh, the women of Beverly and uh, Western Springs. I'll just throw them in there. The ones who voted for uh, to replace t- uh, Danny Lipinski with uh, what's her name, uh, Marie, Marie Newman. Newman. Yeah. yeah, that's the same type, the same type that are in Wilmette, and the same type that are in the western suburbs, supporting Sean Cast, and the same type. And you know what? You can have it. You've destroyed this. You've destroyed the region. Enjoy yourself. Eat it. Bata. Yeah, well, they, they don't have Bata. to go there. Well, they don't care. They don't. They don't have to go to the city anymore. They've no, got. They... Uh, they've got nice sushi places in Hinsdale and Clarendon Hills and on the North Shore. Um, yeah, you know, they don't, enjoy it. Yeah, enjoy they've it. got playhouses and writers' theaters, and I mean, they don't. They don't need to go there. And then they, you know, they're only there for four months a year anyway. And then they and go, go to, to Arizona or Florida or go to, go, wherever. Go to live with Dan down in yeah, Naples. Yeah, I mean, so. I mean, so right. So they right. They they get to walk away from the mess they made. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that don't get to walk away are the people that uh, these these people purport to represent. This is the great irony, and they do represent them in the sense that the people that are faring the worst continue to vote for the people that are providing the worst. So it's a bit of a conundrum. Uh, sort of a riddle there. Well, uh, I, I don't know what to tell people about this other than to describe what it is. In this column uh, today, panic attack in political Chicago over the Biden's migrants, I question whether or not black residents who are obviously furious about being told to get off the corner, get out of the park, move back, they're furious, but I don't know if they're going to vote against the Democrats. No, oh, it's just, this is you heard Pritzker and BLM Brandon. You heard the two of them. It's MAGA. This is uh, a political stunt being uh, pulled off by right wing extremists and so on and so forth. And look, uh, BLM Brandon can point to his buddy Eric Adams in the Big Apple and say, "Look, look, uh, Big Apple. They're talking about handing out small tents to migrants <laughs> and setting up." I'm not. I'm not serious. I'm I know, serious. I know you. And are. setting up camp style uh, sh- uh, shelters in public parks and s'mores so forth. for home. S'more, s'mores for migrants. Yeah. Okay. And campfire songs. Yeah. So this is this is what you know. This is what poor downtrodden mayors like BLM Brandon and like Eric Adams have to do because of these MAGA extremists, uh, Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis, and uh, and of course uh, you know the that MAGA pocket that we have in Streeterville in Chicago. 
Uh, so, you know, they're, they're victims. And look, this is a city that is conditioned to play the victim. This is something that has befallen us. It's not something we did. Nobody's responsible except for MAGA and right-wing extremists. You it's, don't think that sells? Of course it sells. It, it does, especially in uh, mainstream media that carries it and lives on that. Lives on, is like squirrels living on a nut. They live on it. I mean, speaking of CTU and CPS and this uh-huh. crew, I, I mean, the stories yesterday, put, put juxtapose these two stories in your mind. All right. Uh, CPS predicts a $400 million budget deficit next fiscal year. Okay. Yeah. And then go down to Springfield. Uh, that uh, that uh, dude from the northwest side, uh, now state senator, who looks like 20 pounds of dung stuffed into a 10-pound bag, Bobby Martwick. Oh, yeah. The real Bobby, estate boy, right? Bobby Martwick introduces legislation to compensate Chicago school board members. Because, For a job well done, obviously. Well, you know, the, the reading scores are up so high that they decided to pay them. Well, I mean, it, it's just $400 million deficit after all that COVID money was, uh, you know, uh, stuffed into these school districts. And, and but also, too, like it's a crisis. I mean, it's a $9.5 billion criminal enterprise. That $400 million represents 4% of their annual budget. Why are we even talking about this? So figure it out. But no, $400 million deficit after we've run through all the funny money, the feds drop shipped to us. And um, now it's time to compensate school board members. And by the way, how much are they going to make, you ask? Great question. Uh, They're going to set their own compensation. I mean, and so tell me about uh, the paradigm shift that's coming to Chicago that's right right around the corner. I mean, come on. They're buying in and they're, they're, they're entrenching. That's all. That's all. And when David. the money runs out, you know what? Then they can they can eat it too. Uh, all right, hold on, David. Actually, Jose at Mid uh, Midway, uh, you're in Chicago. Hi, good morning. good morning. Two things. Why does nobody look into the ownership of the 38 and California lot? Michael yeah. Padden and Sanchez Trucking. Another thing. The EPA Wait a second. Is, is, that, is that Mikey Padden's place? It's him, him and uh, Sanchez Trucking. Okay. Right. Is that right? Yeah. And why does nobody – and they try to develop the land. It was contaminated. Now it's okay to put tents, I guess, huh? <laughs> Is that I'll right? I don't know. I don't know that for a fact. Thanks you know, for the sir? call, Jose. No, I, I raised the question um, after that meeting at Kelly High School where Ramirez, the alder human, Del- yeah. Delia Ramirez, said – the difference between this and Amundsen Park is that this is a private. This is private property. So, okay, well, that prompts the question: whose private property is it, and what kind of sweetheart deal are the owners of that private property getting? And I hadn't had time and to ask around. Um, but boy, if it's Michael Tadden, you could put any flavor on this uh, stew. But if it basically comes down to how you're doing, that's all. Is is uh, Sanchez Trucking? That's Al Sanchez, right? Well, it could be. I don't know if it's Al Sanchez. All right, we're we're gonna look into that. I appreciate the call, Jose. I, yeah. I, I, if you're right, then we definitely appreciate the heads up there. So we'll we'll start digging now. Let's put it this way: it's not in the Chicago Tribune. It's not. In <laughs> well, the it's Sun not Times. going to be. Yeah, <laughs> it's not going to be. They're not gonna touch it. Yeah. Uh, David and Winneka. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Um. So what Pino and Brandon should really be uh, terrified about is uh, 
but he has more pressing issues, you know, on his mind, such as getting his kids to soccer practice. Is that he uh, has a black wife and three black kids? Come at on, home, y'all! David. Come on, y'all! I got schedules. I got a black wife yeah. and black kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. Exactly. Is it? It's not necessarily the sheer numbers of of the immigrants coming in, but what small percentage are 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 people that want to kill us? You know, true extremist terrorists that you know have snuck over, and um, you know, when when that all starts, that you know that horrible thing that went down in Boston, with however many people, eighteen twenty-two, yeah. that. I'm just waiting for the next news story of, of those acts being committed by, you know, people that want to see infidels dead. I'm, well, I'm waiting to find David out Winneka, thanks. when are these migrant women, many of them are poor, many of them are terribly poor. Uh, what are they doing for cash? Brandon? Hey, Mayor, Brandon. What are they doing for cash? You got any investigation going on on that? Yeah, like these open, uh, open and notorious... Uh, uh, sex traffic or uh, sex worker areas, sex worker prostitute areas in L.A. I'm not accusing. I'm just week. wondering. Well, um, in, in addition to that, but to, to David and Winneka's point, again, uh, 765 individuals on the terrorist watch list uh, stopped at, by Border Patrol in this fiscal year. Forty uh, percent were at ports of entry. Sixty percent were not. But but under Biden, you have one point seven million gotaways. But the and mega tell- Republicans. The and mega. you're telling and you're telling me, yeah. and this is this is the point that Tom Homan made, yeah. and uh, he's coming up on a fourth a forthcoming episode of my counterculture podcast, by the way. Hmm. But um, you're telling me that one point seven million and America's enemies don't see what's happening on our southern border, and they're not going to try to get people in well i mean 765 interactions that we know of and of the 1.7 million gotaways there's no one that came in that has uh bad intentions for america right that that strains strains the bounds of credulity a little bit doesn't it yes uh george in naperville you're on chicago's morning answer yes Dan. chicago's big heart has created a big problem for everyone okay thanks for the call is it is it a big heart? Is that what this is? Uh, there's not. Is it, is this what compassion looks like? You know what you want to talk about compassion is when disease starts rolling through, and infections start rolling through those tent cities, Johnson's tent cities. He knows that'll happen. Skate well, here's or whatever uh, respiratory problems, and that'll happen. And then you, then you have deaths. Well, here's um, one way you can make it up to everybody is to get those uh, Gimme Dad grocery stores up and running. Uh, <laughs> What's that with, working on? With, uh, you know, uh, crazy prices that you uh, can't resist. Um, you should ask uh, me and my brothers, the cast boys, to show up and help them run it. Run absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, volunteer to keep payroll down. I mean, you know, contribute to the city that you love. Um <laughs> This is interesting. Uh, Reason Magazine uh, actually picked up on this, and there is a case study and, of course, cautionary tale for the forthcoming Gimme Dat grocery stores uh, feet to be featured in Chicago. Uh, in 2021, the Wall Street Journal dispatched a reporter to check out the municipal-owned grocery store in Erie, Kansas. Erie Market, which the city took over in 2021, is losing money almost every month. Uh, it has stiff competition from Walmart 15 miles away and a Dollar General across the street, reported the journal. 
Yeah, that is stiff competition. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Erie Market uh, has posted just a single profitable, posted just one uh, uh, month of profitability during 2022, lost an aggregate $132,000. It's because they don't understand politics over there. The city hall owned owned uh, stores should ex- exercise power and shut down Exactly, shut down the competition. Right, exactly. and then, then, then you force uh, the people to go to the government store. Right. Wait, wait, right. Don't, wait, hey, why, that's, what good, that's what a good social, uh, socialist Marxist Bolshevik would do. Exactly. Why don't you rouse some of those uh, inspectors uh, out of the palm and send them to the competition, right? Exactly. Uh, um, this Who is great, cares though. about your opuav? This right. is gr- <laughs> yeah, this is great. Uh, city officials aren't giving up. The store's manager said the goal for 2023 is to lose $100,000. Um, you know, so how are you going to make it up losing money every year? Scaling it. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean scaling? I mean, it's just like how, how do you, you know, how do you make money making change? It's the old right. SNL skit. Oh, you know, volume. Right. Um, we're going to make it up on volume. Right. Um, you know, Reason points out, like, you know, business is losing money, right, but this is money that's taxpayer money, many of whom aren't even using the store. I mean, right, this is all command control. And uh, what are the prospects for uh, quote-unquote profitability uh, in competition with Dollar General and Walmart? I'd say not high. But anyway, uh, just a real-world case study that uh, the team, the Gimme Dat team, may want to examine for uh, best practices, maybe lessons learned, before they roll out the Gimme Dat chain in in Chicago, you know what I'm saying? I like like this story. Yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, Marvin in Burlington, your Chicago's morning answer. Hey, good morning, guys. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's uh, not going to change. Like you touched on it earlier, uh, what has changed in the, in the back black so-called population since the early '60s? They or even before that, they uh-huh. vote for the Democrats no matter what. Their economic right. situation doesn't change. And, and I, I sort of believe uh, the ideologues or the powers that be or the cabal who's ever in charge wants to make it as bad as possible for people who are uh, more individualistic-minded uh, um, um, because then they're going to even get people like us to throw up our hands and say, we give up because their ultimate goal, in my view, is to tear everything down. The thing that's standing in their way is the Constitution, and they want it torn down and they want it rewritten in their vision, and yes. that's not going to change. And that's Thanks for the call, Marva. Dan and John Casson for Amy J. Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. 
So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J this morning, John Cass, johncastnews.com. Hey. Good morning. Uh, Hey, 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 look at this. It turns out that hate does have a home. In Hinsdale, well, we knew this. It also has a home, very comfortable home, at Hinsdale Central High School. Oh. Uh, that normally follows hate having a home in a place that uh, allows ignorance to get settled in. And that happened long ago at Hinsdale Central High School. I know some Hinsdaleans probably listening think that uh, Hinsdale Central is a good school. You can think whatever you want. Hinsdale Central High School principal William Walsh said school officials were unaware of a reported incident of an anti-Semitic slogan displayed in a school classroom. Uh, DuPagePolicyJournal.com has a story, papers to which I'm affiliated. Um, mm-hmm, here's the, the, and the picture, too. Uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Um... Krispy Kreme fundraiser, October 27th, Children of Gaza, uh, before and after school and during lunch, and then there's a, uh, a drawing of the Palestinian flag. Well, wait a minute, Dan. Is, so if you're advocating, publicly advocating, the elimination of Jews from Israel, then is that a hate crime? Well, I don't, you'll have to ask, uh, I mean, these hate Instale. crime things. Right. Yeah, you'll have to ask uh, Bob Berlin about that. But um, the uh, person responsible for this is Sophia Rahman, mm. who is a uh, social studies history teacher at Hinsdale Central and has been since 2012. It turns out that's according to her LinkedIn account. Uh, this was in her classroom. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. We've talked about that essentially a rallying cry used to uh, euphemize the real position, which is the elimination of Israel and Israelis. Uh The um, American Jewish Committee notes the phrase is inherently anti-Semitic as it represents the idea of Palestinian control over the entire territory from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, which includes the land of Israel. This uh, is, of course, nothing. There's nothing, of course, anti-Semitic about advocating for Palestinians to have their own state. However, calling for the elimination of the Jewish state, praising Hamas or other entities who call for Israel's destruction, or suggesting that Jews alone do not have the right to self-determination is anti-Semitic, according to the American Jewish Committee's translation of that phrase. Mm-hmm. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. I'm not done on uh, Ms. Rahman. Ms. Rahman, the social studies teacher at Hinsdale Central. Uh, we also understand that Sophia Rahman, uh, according to sources, uh, 
does not stand for the Pledge of Allegiance because the United States is, quote, not her country. Uh, Sophia Rahman, Miss Rahman, your history teacher at Hinsdale Central. You're taking our tax dollars, but this is not your country. Not our country. Um, she's also retweeted uh, posts of Ilhan Omar. Um, yeah. Um, you know, Ilhan Omar is so noxious that even her own party was forced into censuring her for her uh, anti-Semitic ravings online. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, who else uses the phrase around town? Well, yeah, Chicago City Council Housing Committee Chairman uh, Alder Human Byron Sigcho Lopez, who is a, a Marxist, new Marxist. What about um, Chuy Garcia? He uses that phrase. Mm-hmm. What about Chuy Garcia, congressman? Uh, sure, yeah. So how about that? Hinsdale Central, what, what, what's going on there? When they used to play Lions Township, they would dress up in uh, in soccer. They would wear white trash bags, like glad bags or, you know, hefty trash bags, and scream about how West, uh, <laughs> the kids from Lions Township were white trash. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's kind of funny, actually. Yeah, yeah. that's how they played. Uh, they whole it's okay. It's all right. It's okay. You're gonna work for me someday, or work Something for us like someday. It. Yeah, that Something whole attitude. Like I get it. Uh, well, that's not surprising either. But I, I just from the adults here. Um, where do the kids get it? Of course, from the adults here, like your uh, history teacher that's been there for a dozen years. Who's not? Who doesn't love America? Who doesn't really respect America or like America? Not her country. Not our country. Uh-huh. But love to but audit me, that history Give me class. the money and give me the rights and give me the benefits, but not, not my country. I wonder if she's contributing to uh, this data. Um, I mean, this is unsurprising. There's been survey research like this before, but in this moment it uh, bears a refresher. Almost two-thirds of young American adults do not know that six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. More than – so almost two-thirds – I wonder how many are Hinsdale Central grads. Uh, more than one in ten believe Jews caused the Holocaust. I wonder how many are Hinsdale Central grads, again, given their history teacher. Uh, according to the study of millennial and Gen Z adults, 18 to 39, almost half could not name a single concentration camp. I- I'm surprised it's only half. Mm. I would have guessed 90%. Almost a quarter... say they believe the Holocaust was a myth or had been exaggerated or they weren't sure. So, um, you know, Art Butts over at Northwestern has done his job and these other Holocaust deniers. Um, That's what you're getting out of the schools. Joe in Naperville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. I'd like to point out the hypocrisy that here's something that's blatant that the left is doing at anti-Semitic. But if they have a picture of me with an OK sign, oh, my gosh, that's so racist. I need to be canceled because, you know, white supremacy is the biggest uh, threat to democracy, according to Biden and his administration. You know what? There has to be a prohibition against editors because editors allow that crap in newspapers. They allow it. Allow which crap? You know, like uh, like I'm, I'm doing now, I'm giving you the OK sign in the camera. Uh-huh. That's apparently racist because I'm like this, okay? Right. What? I don't get uh, that. 
So, so nobody wants to defend Hinsdale Central. I'm, I'm uh, disparaging <laughs> this uh, bastion of enlightenment, Hinsdale Central, in one of the most educated, uh, forward-thinking uh, hamlets in Chicagoland area, filled with talented people doing the wonderful anguish, things. The anguish that Dan Proft is creating for the good matrons of Hinsdale is. You can't even measure it. What about the um, what about the women, in addition to the matrons? Uh huh. Oh, you mean, you think the matrons are are the uh, male counterparts? <laughs> eh, right. Yeah. Eh, it's tough to tell. I mean, it's like, you, just because somebody's in active wear, don't don't uh, rush your judgment. Well, they, they might be those guys who are running out running out to get Lululemon pants. You know. Hey, hey, hey there's nothing wrong with Lululemon <coughs> pants. Yeah, right. All right. Uh, Leo Leibovitz, writing in City Journal, American Banlu. Uh, Banlu, uh, for those who live in Hinsdale, is basically a French word for suburb. Uh, just like the French suburbs that catch fire quite literally every time their disgruntled residents decide that they're not fond of a particular policy or a bit of breaking news, we now have bonfires in Bay Ridge and pinheads at Penn marching around and cheering on Jewish genocide. And just like those French suburbs, one major reason for this vile and violent degeneracy is a new generation of young people who no longer feel bound to their fellow citizens in any meaningful way. Hmm. Um, Leo Levitz's personal story. I'm an immigrant. I spent a handful of my most formative boyhood months crouching in a bomb shelter on the outskirts of Tel Aviv, watching Hussein's Scud rockets bursting in air as American Patriot missiles intercepted them before they could wreak havoc. Seeing American soldiers fighting abroad for freedom, my freedom moved me deeply. It inspired me as soon as I was able to uh, move here to fly a large American flag outside my apartment door and to raise my American children to cherish this nation and its divinely inspired mandate of pursuing life, liberty, and happiness. Who would you rather have teach history at Hinsdale Central, Leo Leibovitz or Miss Raman, Sophia Raman? The most extraordinary thing about my personal story, writes Leibovitz, is how ordinary it is. Bay Ridge, this charming neighborhood in the southwest corner of Brooklyn, where some of the worst pro-Hamas riots erupted last week, is itself a tapestry of so many similar stories of young men and women coming to America in search of its goodness and greatness. The neighborhood was once home to America's largest Norwegian community. Then came the Italians and the Irish and the Greeks, followed by the Puerto Ricans and the Mexicans, the Jordanians and the Egyptians and the Syrians. Different people, different ethnicities, different faiths, yet a shared sense of place, and more importantly, of destiny. Whatever else these immigrants believed, whatever else they carried with them from their homelands, they all had this in common. America was their home, and you don't set your home on fire. The suburbs he's talking about are the suburbs of the North Africans, Algerians, and others who have never been part of French society, not really. Not, a, not not allowed in. I mean, they could live there and work there, but they've never been <clears throat> welcomed as part of the society. Well, that that goes <clears throat> both ways. There, yes, there's also yes. a lot of separatism uh, that's afoot there. Of course, but, you know, some of us have argued for many years that this balkanization, these, uh, you know, identity politics and all this, the identity politics, the balkanization of America is what le- was leading us down a down a terrible path. Of course it is. And, I mean, and uh, Thomas we can so- see it. Yeah. To- I, I go back. This I mean because it's just uh, the most stark answer you're going to get, and from somebody who's 
bona fides are uh, legion. Mm-hmm. Right. Thomas Sowell, when he was asked by <clears throat> Peter Robinson, if social justice warriors got their way, got everything they wanted, what would America look like? And Thomas Sowell said quite simply, we'd be killing each other. Rwanda. Because there's there's right. nothing left to there's nothing that binds us together. It's just our identity and it's uh, king of the hill. Uh, so back to Leibowitz just for just mm-hmm. a second. So um, so from his from his description of Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, you know, with all the different immigrant yes. uh, different nationalities that emigrated to this neighborhood and the country. And by the way, uh, that's what uh, people like John Cass and people like me want to see it's great it would exactly what Leibowitz is describing for so you know for for any time somebody wants to give you this xenophobe line it's like oh you're racist they don't have an argument they don't have they don't have anything important to say they're just so they, trolls they on twitter on without without the ability or uh, guts course. to grow a pair of names of course so what changed asked Leibowitz and he answers it although it's incomplete because it's complicated why would these youthful Americans hailing from Staten Island and Brooklyn and Queens throw punches and pelt the police with egg, eggs? Their parents, after all, never did that, not during previous rounds of Israeli-Palestinian altercations, not during America's failure to keep its promise to intervene in Syria's Assad, as Syria's Assad massacred hundreds of thousands of its own people, not even during America's bungled invasion of Iraq. Why now? Well, one Part of it may be they got their education from a morally bankrupt school system held hostage by a pernicious union that was quick to co-sponsor one of the first pro-Hamas rallies in the city and defend teachers who giddily supported terrorism. Sound familiar? CPS? Hinsdale Central? Yes. Oh, hate has no place on our campus as the principal. Well, you better go check your, uh, your history teacher's classroom. It may be in part because our colleges have committed themselves not to the free and unfettered exchange of ideas, but to peddling the sort of paganism that drives some professors in Ivy League schools to behold the beheading of babies and feel, quote-unquote, exhilarated at such, quote-unquote, awesome examples of resistance. That moron is still teaching, right? Uh, The The exhilarated guy at Cornell is on leave. Oh, okay. But just on leave. He'll be back. And if not at Cornell, somewhere else. Guarantee it. Dance of the Lemons. Yeah, right. Pass the trash. Right. Um, and li- listen, this is, too. I missed this one earlier until I read Leibowitz's column. Listen to this. <laughs> it may be because most of our chic magazines now employ bozos quick to take to social media to accuse Jews of collaborating with the Nazis or at the very least of vag- vastly exaggerating the reports of their own suffering. I hate Illinois Nazis. Uh, last night... This is Eric Levitz in in the New York, New York Magazine. Last night, I asserted that this report indicated that babies were beheaded. This was an overstatement. I should have said that the report established that babies were found headless, a fact that lends plausibility to the claims of beheading, but which does not prove them. Because you didn't, you didn't see the politic. You didn't see Biden taking the money from the Ukrainian boss, right? So he's not corrupt. Is that what you're saying? Moron. I reported that babies were beheaded. That's an overstatement. I should have said babies were found headless. What culture produces that lends plausibility to the claim of beheading, but does not prove? Did they behead themselves, Eric? Can you find out? What the fuck? What I mean, is honestly, going on with the chinless men? 
chestless men. What? Why don't you find that, that out? Where did where did they go wrong? Where do they become chinless and chestless? What so, did this happen? Uh, right. So Bay Ridge, Bay Ridge yeah. is Hinsdale Central. Yes. Bay Ridge today, not the good Bay Ridge. Bay Ridge today, the one that Leibowitz is describing, is Hinsdale Central. It's a Chicago public school system. Right. It's most the the banlous of Chicago, most of the suburbs. Oh, and by the way, unlike the stilted coverage you get from the uh, these um, Hamas collaborators in the Chicago press corps, and at Hinsdale Central and at uh, Northwestern University and every other institution that is morally bankrupt, um, we'll cover it all. So the story that the uh, NPR Times state-funded media is uh, has reported to the exclusion of any reporting on uh, crimes directed at Jews for being Jews. What's their flavor now? A suburban Palestinian family threatened to remove free Palestine sign from lawn or burn. Um, Lila Gaber, uh, who lives in Hickory Hills, put this free Palestine sign in her yard with the Palestinian flag. Fine. Every right to do that. Um, She received an anonymous letter from someone uh, basically saying, take the sign down or uh, or burn, which uh, is not appropriate. You can disagree with her. She has a right to put the sign up and, and don't tell her ma- to burn, take it down. Make and her case. Burn it. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course not. You don't. It's a crime. Of course not. And no one is. No one from um, this side. No one is defending that. No one from you know conservative talk radio. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Certainly not. This, certainly not on this show. Right. Uh, is uh, suggesting that anybody treat a person poorly. Regardless of their viewpoint, or regard—I mean, wasn't you know, the national in terms of violence or threats of violence, regardless of their viewpoint, regardless of their ethnicity, and regardless of anything else? Didn't the NPR Times blame, if not you, talk radio in general? Talk radio, for, conservative talk radio for, for the, the murder the, of a six-year-old. Yeah, the six-year-old Palestinian boy in uh, Plainfield. Right, his uh, the the uh, alleged murderer listened to talk radio. Said his wife. So you you know. So you hey, put it. You, Pack you connect the dots, right, right. right? You do the math. Right. They're so, I mean, they're disgusting. I worked with them for 40 years, and I can't believe that I still have any friends outside of, of like, I'm glad I have you as a friend. I mean, others, other conservatives, but it's a, it's a, it's a strange life to live that way, to live, live that way and think that way. And it's and it, it, well, it is, and it's a, a strange life too to see barbarism and pretend you don't, or to call it something else. It's barbarism. You're allowed to be barbaric, you know, to the tip of my nose in terms of your viewpoints, don't touch and we'll do we'll right. do intellectual battle. Yeah. But to to be unable to draw moral distinctions on these issues, uh, particularly when people know better, they're just cowards, right. is really something to behold. And that's where you have, for example, Bay Ridge hmm. uh, or a high school campus or these college campuses turn into Hinsdale. what they are now from what they used to be once upon a time. As long as the parents, as long as the people of authority, the people who pay taxes, you know, if you keep buying the Tribune, because you like the uh, crossword puzzle, you're supporting the editorial part of it too. 
Oh Same God, thing. Crossword puzzle. Whatever. Come on. You know, up your game. That's easy. It's easy. I don't. I don't play crosswords. Okay. But I mean, if you do that. Sudoku. You're more of a Sudoku guy. I don't play any games like that. But I used to read. Gil, I used to read Gil Thorpe. Okay. But the point is, if you support anything like that in a in a media like a newspaper, you're supporting the politics of the newspaper. Same as if you're supporting, I don't know, you're 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 having a bake sale for the Hinsdale uh, Library, the Hinsdale Library, the people there. You're supporting Hinsdale and Rothman, Rachman, whatever his name is. Steve South Elgin. Good morning, Dan and John. Uh, I wanted to touch on the Holocaust thing not being taught in school. My my uh, my kids go to St. Charles schools, and in middle school, they go straight from talking about slavery in the Civil War and skip right to the Civil Rights Movement. There's no talk of Cold War, the, of World War II, or any of it. It's not even touched on. Sla- <laughs> First there was slavery, then there was the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, anything happened in between? Nope. Okay, well, thanks for the call, Steve. All right, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Courtney in Highland Park. Hi, Dan. Thanks for taking my call. I'd like to bring attention to the Illinois Holocaust Museum, which is not doing your job. And if there are other Jewish people listening to you, take note. I went there as a chaperone, um, and I was shocked, shocked at the what they call the um, Take a Stand exhibit, which is just social justice, leftism, deep in. They have a huge uh, poster light up of Carly Lloyd, pictures of Billie Jean King, um, writings about LGBT kids or asking for more books, LGBT books in their kindergarten class. Jews and non-Jews alike should go. And I wrote the board twice, to which you can imagine I heard crickets. Mm-hmm. I am so disappointed, and they should be called out. They are part of the problem. They have they have lost, absolutely gone off the rails, and have lost credit when we have real anti-Semitism in the suburb of Skokie, where I grew up. It's a wow. it's a shame, and I I just want to call attention to it. I have cousins. Glad who you volunteer did. Volunteer there. Yeah. And, uh, Thank you, Courtney. They, they volunteer there, and uh, I have never heard of this, but I'll bring it up when I see them. I mean, right, two-thirds of 18- to 39-year-olds never heard of the Holocaust, and the Holocaust Museum is uh, doing pitches for what, LGBTQ uh, promotion in sports. Billie Jean King is the spokesman for the Holocaust Museum. Like, what, the, <laughs> what, the, what the hell is going on? I don't have any idea. Oh, boy. John and Wakanda. Yeah, hi, guys. Um, uh, didn't uh, – hey – didn't uh, Jesse Jackson call New York City Honeytown years back? He was a trailblazer. Yeah, he was right. calling them. He started out long ago. But what I, what I wanted to say was that the youth of America now, they found an easy easy target for uh, protesting with George Floyd and then 2020 and then against Trump and then the trans stuff, all this stuff. But now they've run into a buzzsaw with the Jews and, and this, this issue. Uh, it was very easy, though. Make Jews white is what happened there. They've now been transformed into whites, just like the Asians colonists. transformed they're, into whites. They're caught right. So colonial. So that's, that's what's going on. Yeah. They're, but I, they're, but they're running into resistance now, which is interesting. Well, thanks for the call, John. 
It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy this morning is John Cash, JohnCashNews.com, Chicago Way Podcast, sign up, pay up for John's musings and a lot of contributors that he has um, on his, uh, at his outlet as well. Maybe someday me if I'm so lucky. Uh, Glenn Kirshner is a former assistant U.S. attorney, which is a baffling statement uh, on its face when you listen to this guy. Uh, he is a legal analyst for MSNBC, and he is uh, advocating uh, that Trump be imprisoned pending trial. He is uh, a greater threat to the public than, I don't know, just about uh, anybody else that uh, Mr. Kirshner can think of. Take a listen to his argument. You know, Nicole, I would argue that the institutions of government are – proving themselves ill-equipped or perhaps not up to the task of treating the sort of ultimate ruling class criminal, a former president of the United States who tried to install himself in the Oval Office over the will of the American voters as a dictator. He tried to bring an end to the American experiment. It doesn't feel like the court system or the institutions of government writ large are are meeting the urgency of the moment. And, you know, when I was sitting in court when the gag order was originally being argued, and I heard Judge Chutkin say the following, um, if it were any other defendant who was on release pending trial in a felony federal case who accused the prosecutor who was handling his case of being a deranged thug, that person would be in pretrial detention. You know, Nicole, one, that is indisputably true. And two, it is so disheartening because it is an express recognition that we're treating Donald Trump differently than, and here's the real injustice of it, the tens of thousands of other pretrial detainees all across this country who are sitting in jail cells awaiting trial because the judge has determined by clear and convincing evidence that they are either a flight risk or a danger to the community. I would hazard a guess that not a single one of them is as dangerous to the community or to society (laughs) or to our democracy as is Donald Trump. But the system is, for whatever reason, declining to meet the moment. You know who's dangerous? This guy. And anyone else who supports this fellow at any party, social gathering, I can imagine them all. All the journalists who scream about authoritarian rule are the ones who would jail a political opponent. You know what the problem is with the system? It's uh, going too easy on Trump. He's gonna Look, he's going to win, <laughs> and that's why the system great. sucks. Right? This is great. First of all, there's nothing. I mean, this guy is supposedly an officer of the court. He's uh, uh, exhibit A and why uh, people have completely lost faith in the Department of Justice. Ruling class criminal. I'm sorry, uh, Counselor, has uh, President Trump been convicted of something? Ruling class criminal. A dictator. 
Has that been established? That's what he sought to do. Uh, he was going to suspend Congress and the courts and install himself as a as an autocrat. But I mean, I don't uh, think people and, and, I don't think people really understand how oppressive this kind of thought is when you deal with it day in and day out, like in the media, in the uh, social gatherings of the Tribune and sometimes and people like that. It well, is and, constant. And and uh, um, excuse me, if somebody called a prosecutor uh, to range thug, that that would be the occasion to hold them uh, in detention pending trial if they were bonded out. Uh, no, no. Number one, number two. By the way, this isn't just you know right wing extremist conservative talk radio guy. Oh, oh, by the way, the ACLU has rediscovered the Constitution. Oh God. They, no, they support him now too, right? No, they support Trump. Yes, that's what I mean. They yeah, they they've they, the the uh, gag order that Kirshner wants not only instituted; it's been uh, temporarily paused so that both sides can submit arguments. But um, Kirshner not only wants it imposed, he also wants it enforced and in Trump jail. imprisoned right, right now. <laughs> but the ACLU uh, talking about this gag order, which. Uh, Chutkin, the Obama-appointed judge, any public statements that target the special counsel, defense counsel, blah, 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 target. The ACLU, in their brief, the, said the, that her gag order is unconstitutionally vague. Uh, the meaning is ambiguous, fails to provide fair warning that the Constitution demands, especially when, as here, concerns a prior restraint on speech, and so on and so forth. The ACLU, uh, of course, which is a tool of the left, even felt compelled maybe to sort of uh, try to rebrand themselves as actually interested in constitutional protections, even of people they don't like, which, of course, is the point of constitutional protections. Right. Um, maybe that. But regardless, so so the ACLU's with me and uh, we're up against Nicole Wallace and uh, Glenn Kirshner. Good grief. I remember honestly. when the ACLU represented uh, Nazis going to Skokie. Well, the, again, when the Constitution is supposed to protect people you don't like, exactly. you disagree with. Otherwise, what would the need be if everybody agreed and was going to behave the same way on everything all the time? Mm -hmm. Of course, it's, it's the hallmark of a free society. But the ACLU is sort of just has dalliances with the Constitution today. For more on this uh, and uh, other matters, please be joined by Kevin Brock again, former assistant director of Intel for the FBI, former principal deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, Dan. John, nice to see uh, talk hey, to you. How are you doing? Hey, did you ever run across Glenn Kirshner in your uh, <laughs> time at the FBI? <laughs> no, and nobody like him, actually, uh, although I, I tend to agree with him. The privileged class uh, does get treated differently. Look at what's going on with the, the Biden go. family. <laughs> yeah, and, right. uh, where there's a lot more indicators of criminal activity than than we've ever imagined with uh, with Donald Trump, and I'm not, I'm not saying that as a Donald Trump fan, but uh, I mean just objectively, you look at, uh, at what's going on with the Bidens and all the information that we know publicly, clear indications and ample justification for federal investigation uh, from Joe Biden all the way down through the rest of his family. Well, what's going on at FBI headquarters where they can, as as per Grassley's letter the other day. Where they, yeah, they can uh, they can ferret out and flush out and basically destroy and discredit sources that they're working with. Uh, John, look at the totality of what we've seen so far. We've seen 
a number of whistleblowers come forward in frustration from both the FBI and the IRS. That doesn't happen unless there's something there to be frustrated about. You've got allegations by Grassley of 40 confidential human sources reporting information uh, involving criminal activity of the Bidens. I find that I find that a little bit hard to believe. I mean, 40, 40 informants on one issue is a lot in the FBI. Usually, that's a major nationwide uh, criminal organization. You know, so I'm wondering whether it could be 40 reports. But nevertheless. If it is true, it indicates that there is a substantial amount of people offering information about criminal activity, and yet nothing seems to be moving forward, and why is that? And there's frustration being expressed by, by line agents, by line assistant U.S. attorneys, and even the U.S. attorney in, in Pittsburgh saying that you know this is going nowhere. So I, I see one of two explanations. Yes, let's Number hear. one. Number one, the the information that they've aggregated so far, they're struggling to get to a chargeable offense. In other words, they just don't have the, the evidence yet. Now that and I know it may not sound plausible, but it's difficult to to make cases, particularly when it involves bribery. Um, well, number two, though, you I can't, you just you go can't, look at what they're doing to Mike Madigan, and then. Well, well, Apply Mike Madigan. To... Well, let's not do Illinois. Um, that's you can't get to the evidence. Uh, if you're not looking for the evidence. That's the real issue, it yeah. seems, at the FBI. Well, and that's my second point. The second point is, and I think it's becoming abundantly clear, we've got a Department of Justice that's just not going to charge the, the Bidens. I mean, if, if you have a Department of Justice that was willing to to do a search warrant raid of, of Joe Biden's likely uh, adversary in the 2024 presidential election. If you've got a DOJ that's willing to do an early morning raid of journalists over a $20 diary of a president's daughter, then you've got a DOJ that's not going to charge them for these things. It's just it's becoming clear that this is it's just not going to happen. Uh, you mentioned the uh, Pittsburgh former Pittsburgh U.S. Attorney Scott Brady. Uh, the testimony that he offered to the House Judiciary Committee was that. Um, his team found credible evidence in its initial review of Hunter Biden's dealings with Burisma and possible corruption by Joe Biden to refer criminal matters to three separate U.S. attorney's offices in Brooklyn, Manhattan and Delaware. And almost immediately after resigning to justice in 2020, Brady said he encountered resistance at both the FBI and the Delaware U.S. attorney's office that at times required him to escalate to his bosses in the deputy attorney general's office. I think there was right. reluctance, this is his quote, I think there was reluctance on the part of the FBI to really do any tasking related to our assignment and looking into allegations of Ukrainian corruption broadly, and then specifically anything that intersected with Hunter Biden and his role at Burisma, it was very challenging, which is euphemistic lawyers speak for saying, I got mm -hmm. shut down. It seems like there was a lot of work done on the ground, so agents doing investigations, uh, line United States attorneys getting information and trying to build cases, and then it would run into a, a roadblock either at FBI headquarters or at Maine Justice or referring to these other U U.S. attorneys around the country uh, that were supposed to be looking into this. It would come to full stop. So why is that? And that, that we don't know yet, but it, it looks like the, the word was out that uh, the case isn't going to go anywhere. And that's why you've got whistleblowers, and that's why you've got people talking to Grassley out of frustration. So, um, you know, it's it's I don't think it's uh, uh, systemic throughout the FBI or, uh, you know, the U.S. attorneys 
uh, assistant U.S. attorneys across the country. But I do think there's an effort uh, higher up to uh, to thwart this investigation. It so looks like it anyway. When will the FBI clean itself? Is it possible that the FBI oh, can cleanse itself? Absolutely, and I you know I resist the talk that you know from some presidential candidates. Well, we've got to disband the FBI. We got to throw it, start over again. That would be. That would be a fool's errand. Uh, it would be throwing out uh, an awful lot of baby with bathwater. Uh, the FBI is still doing amazing things, and we uh, and we actually need the FBI more now than ever right now. When we've got reports of uh, belligerence from uh, state-sponsored uh, terrorism countries and known members of the of the watch list coming into this, being confronted at our borders right now, in a surge that's taken place over the last year and a half. That's extremely worrisome. Uh, we need the CIA and the FBI to be determining what's behind that, where these people are, and then taking action to investigatively neutralize them. Uh, that, that's that's a clear and present danger, far worse than anything else we're talking about. And I'm not I'm not belittling or downplaying the the danger of having a person in the White House right now who took uh, enormous amounts of money in his into his family. And then is spending, is then is sending enormous amounts of money to the Ukraine and and uh, enacting policies that are friendly to China. Uh, that's that is scary and dangerous. But uh, but the FBI is you know it gets amplified. This stuff gets amplified. But it, the FBI is still doing a lot of things that are important to this country that we we can't interfere with right now. And and how much culpability does Christopher Ray have for uh, yes. knowing all this, all this information that's coming on? Out now and doing nothing about it, not uttering a, a word about it, not providing any indication of a reckoning inside the agency, of a course correction inside the agency. So how do we how do we view the FBI? How do you trust the FBI with that kind of leadership? And that's the problem. And I've written about this extensively. I said the number one job of an FBI director is to make sure that the American people have faith and trust in the FBI, because once that's lost, we have lost faith in a vital institution that makes this democracy run. If you don't have an objective law enforcement that's looking at uh, uh, corruption issues fairly and evenly, then then where are we? So um, insofar as that trust, that mistrust still exists, and, and obviously you're expressing it, Dan, almost on a daily basis, uh, then the FBI director is not doing that which he or she is, is, is supposed to be doing. And, and, and so there should be more, I've always called more transparency. Do not hide behind the, the standard language of, well, this is an ongoing investigation. We really can't comment. It doesn't cut it in this day and age. Yeah. Uh, there, there are ways to be more transparent and to be more cooperative with the overseers in Congress. And that has to, that has to improve. There's no doubt. Well, the, the good news is you've got company. Uh, I also don't trust the Department of Homeland Security, um, and um, that's uh, continuing to uh, d- deteriorate. Uh, this information out this week, uh, emails that uh, were uh, gained through FOIA uh, requests, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, misinformation team in the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency within DHS had settled on a narrative for Hunter Biden's laptop by the week, uh, the following week after the New York Post story, guilt by association with the Russian state and QAnon and disinterest in authenticity and integrity, despite the FBI confirming nearly a year earlier 
that it was indeed his laptop, according to a contemporaneous IRS memo. So the FBI knew it was his laptop. The IRS knew it was his laptop. And a year after the fact, DHS runs a disinformation campaign sponsored by the disinformation board and all these intel and top law enforcement people that put their name on that letter. Right. Well, exactly. That letter is an indicator of how deep this goes. you got 51 former intelligence community, uh, 90% of them were CIA, intelligence community executives, uh, coming, you know, signing a letter saying that this this has all the classic earmarks of a Russian operation, when in fact uh, the person who organized the letter, Michael Morell, um, <laughs> admitted that he did it just to help Joe Biden, you know, get elected. But the others signed it, and as as a, and the others signed it, and to this day, uh, John, most of them say i'd sign it again i mean it's it tells you right there yeah we just said oh it could be it just has the earmarks we didn't say it definitely was yeah that's real that's really exculpatory and and by the way the fbi knew that that was a lie and nobody at the fbi said anything when they put that letter out no they didn't and but nobody at the fbi was asked to sign the letter either thankfully um and I, i know many of those individuals i'm thankful they didn't ask me to sign it uh i wouldn't have but uh but well, it's, my brother uh, didn't sign it my brother nick did not sign it and his uh, brother he, CIA. Knows, he was in this yeah. he was served he served for 30 years for, for this country and uh, yeah. there are many people who dealt in senior intelligence and counterintelligence matters critical to the united states that did not sign it nor would they be approached by hacks like right. morell and they because they, he knows Morell knows better. He knows who he can go to. He, it's just like an intelligence op. He knows who he can go right. to and who he can't go to. He knew the depth of uh, distaste in this government for Donald Trump, and that it runs deep. Yeah. And uh, so the, those people were willing to put their integrity on the line uh, and lose that integrity <clears throat> in order to keep him out of the White House. It's. Uh, I don't know. That's a soul selling that uh, is puzzling to me. All right. Well, Kevin, if uh, Trump gets back in or another Republican does, you you know, stick by your phone because we're going to need you to run the FBI. <laughs> Kevin Brock, former assistant director of Intel for the FBI, former principal deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Kevin, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure, gents. Good morning. Nice talk. And he joined us on the Pro Answer line. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J is John Cass, johncastnews.com, for his musings, including his recent piece we discussed earlier, his most recent piece on uh, BLM Brandon's panic over the migrant situation in Chicago. Uh, John, uh, you're the father of two Gen Zers, aren't you? They're Gen Z. I guess if they were born, like, in the in 1995, does that make them Gen or 97, that make them Gen Z? Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I think they're well under the threshold. You know what? It's... They're becoming militant. Mil- militant? Militantly conservative. Oh, well, that's good. 
So there's because they can't afford. They want they want to get married. They want to move on with their lives, have a family, and this economy. They can't even begin to approach uh, having a house, for example, Mm -hmm. and living Mm -hmm. a life. Yeah. Um, right, the eight uh, percent uh, mortgage rate's not attractive, no. uh, among other things. But uh, so it, it's interesting. So this is sort of a, a question. There's been this uh, recent um, flood of uh, Gen Z videos that have been circulating online that are risable, and you know, when kids get blindsided by reality, it's easy to have fun at their expense because what are they, they, crying, they snowflakes. What are they doing? Yeah, they they make it easy, but but I wonder too. I mean, we'll play some of them, but do you, do you think? I mean, every every generation when they get out of the uh, out of school, whether it's high school or college, and into the workforce, there's going to be some surprises. They're going to be how you thought it was going to be, and what you think you're entitled to, and how things actually work. So that happens in every generation. I mean, go back to Reality Bites for us Gen Xers. But so I wonder if if it's just that playing out. Or if it's uh, something more dysfunctional afoot with Gen Z. So love to hear from other parents of Gen Zers. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Um, I, think they, I think they want, it's like they think it should be like a epic story where they're, where they're <clears throat> on a journey, on a quest. You know, a hero with, of a thousand faces and so forth. And they're on a quest and they see the old man at the crossroads. An old well, man that looks like me with a beard and grizzly yeah. Adam beard and mm-hmm. everything. And he can barely walk like me and says, the left road is to riches. The right road is to certain death. You know, which one do you want to take? <laughs> yeah, okay. But there is no old man at the crossroads in real life. There's no Yoda. There is no Yoda. I, I think some, um, I think uh, uh, our friend Dr. Leonard Sachs, who's a, MIT and University of Penn trained and educated psychologist. He calls it the middle class script. This fallacy that uh, kids have been told: um, Which work is? hard, work hard, get good grades, go to a good school, um, you know, get into a good college, get a good job, make money, live happily ever after. And it's just not that linear. Um, sorry, well, sorry, Doctor Sex. That's what I did. Well, I worked hard. I got into a college. I didn't. I, I guess Columbia is not a good college, but I didn't want to grow up and be a commie. And I, I don't, and I and I studied journalism and got a job. Well, he, I met a girl, got a yeah. job. I wanted to impress on the girl that I loved uh, that I could hold a job, and uh, things t- we took it from there. Well, I I think no, I th- I think that's right. He, you're and that's not really the interpretation of what he's saying. It's uh, what he's saying is that you know you you th- you're you're do you have these expectations and sons, especially after college, you're sometimes people are burdened by their education, um, and we'll get to that in a second. But it's it's just the idea that um, you don't consider what you really want to do, and how you want to do it, and you get sort of bound up in the trappings of expectations, both that uh, b- b- most of which have been sort of. Um, uh, put upon you as to how things should proceed, what you should be doing, what you can expect, and so on and so forth, and everything's supposed to neatly fall into place. And there's a lot of people that work hard and go to a good school, and things don't fall in place yeah. so easily. That's the and sort of more the point. And then they curl up and cry. 
Well, I'll give you an example here. Uh, a uh, young lady on her way to her job as a oh, server at a sushi garbage. restaurant. I have a bone to pick with America! So I'm headed to my serving job. I fucking hate it. Oh. I fucking hate it. Be why I make more money serving. I have my literal business marketing degree that put me in a cute $80,000 in debt. And I make more serving sushi rolls because I was, I've been applying to marketing jobs for weeks now. And the, the pay cut is insane. Insane. But the jobs that are like a cute 150 to 200,000 a year, I'm not getting those. I'm a 20, almost 25 year old, my birthday soon, almost 25 year old chick going against, you know, corporate ass America, people with so much experience. All I got is my degree. You know, people say, get your degree, but then they don't talk about how you need experience. The degree was the experience. Well, I would not hire her just on the basis of vulgarity. Um. Yeah. Well, she's uh, filming that while she's driving in what appears to be a pretty nice car and drinking an $8 cup of coffee from Starbucks. But, you know, <laughs> uh, somebody else on the 9 to 5 scam, just to give you a little flavor of the uh, exasperation out there among the Zers. I know I'm probably just being so dramatic and annoying, but this is my first job, like my first nine to five job after college. And I'm in person and I'm commuting in the city and it takes me forever to get there. There's no way I'm going to be able to afford living in the city right now. So that's off the table. Like, duh, if I was able to walk to work and it would be fine, but I'm not. So it literally takes me like I leave here, like I get on the train at 730 and I don't get home till like 615 earliest. And then like, I don't have time to do anything. I don't, I want to shower, eat my dinner and go to sleep. I don't have time or energy to cook my dinner either. Like I don't have energy to work out like that's out the window. Like I'm so upset. Oh my God. Nothing to do with my job at all, but just like the nine to five schedule in general is crazy. Being in the office nine to five, like if it was remote, you get off at five and you're home and everything's fine. But like, I'm not home. It takes me long to get home. And like, like people that drive to the office, like it doesn't, you don't get off at five. And I know it could be worse. I know I could be working longer, but like, I literally get off. It's pitch black. Like, I don't have energy. How do you have friends? Like, how do you have time to, like, meet, like, a guy? I don't know. Like, how do you have time for, like, dating? Like, I don't have time for anything. And I'm, like, so stressed out. And I'm also getting my period. So that's why I'm all emotional. But, like, am I so dramatic? It's fine. I'm so glad I had sons. <laughs> I'm so glad I had sons. I'm just saying that right now. Uh, this is kind of fun. All right. Well, uh, one more. Maybe a couple more. I saw that one. Working a nine to five is the biggest scam out there. The biggest scam. How the do you want to sit here and tell me that I work every day of my life, every day, but I still don't have enough to pay my bills? How? How? And before you say, oh, get a better job, bitch, I have had four jobs. Four different, completely different type of jobs. All different pays. And how are you going to tell me none of those four jobs? could pay my fucking bills. How? Working for people is fucking scamming, bro. A fucking scam. But then, but then, you know what? There's drug dealers and scammers out here sitting on their ass living their best life. When I don't have time to go do anything, 
fun when I don't have the money to go do anything fun. I am so tired of working for people. It's not even funny. Like, I swear to God, if somehow I win the lottery, get a scratch-off ticket, some and make, get like 10 bands, honey, honey, I am quitting my job and I am starting my own business because I am so tired of working for people. Like, dead ass. Like, people need to be more aware of how much a 9 to 5 is a scam. A literal scam. It is nothing but a scam. And I'm sorry about my lisp. My tongue ring is still healing. But it's a scam. It's a f***ing scam. She's got a tongue ring in and it's still healing. So she could afford a tongue piercing. Oh, so but, shit. People yeah. don't take her seriously because she's got a piece of metal in her tongue. Well, also because she talks like a sailor. But um, <laughs> but uh, beyond that, I mean, she did say one thing. I want to go work for myself, start a business. Okay, go start a business. It's so uh, easy. Yeah. Yeah, right. She's going to find out just how yeah. uh, not easy that is. But okay. Um, any advice for Gen Zers? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text on. I, I got to get this. I got to get this guy in. This guy's uh, a lot more chill. Let's hear um, Not a graduate of the Naval Academy or West Point. Let me just preface that. But uh, given uh, the uh, global conflicts in which the United States is involved and the precarious uh, national security situation we have on multiple fronts uh this young man decided to uh offer some social commentary on the topic why is everybody saying gen z is gonna get drafted like <laughs> no we're not and you know why i know that because we're just gonna say no like how are they gonna actually force us to get up and go to war i understand it was like that in like the 1940s what else is there to do in 1940 besides shoot people we have things to do nowadays we have twerk, be bisexual, eat hot chip, bye. And we're also like really mentally ill. I have like six of these. What makes you think I'm qualified Holds to have a, a gun? Pill bottle. Like within 600 feet of anybody, including myself. And finally, like guns are like so tacky. Like, can you imagine just like pulling up with a gun? Like that is so embarrassing. Like what is this, the revolutionary? war now like let's just chat let's just talk there's no there's no need for all the like like no <laughs> no it's not gonna happen don't worry uh, i'm not this worried guy has a father okay you uh, know that right he's he has a, a father he's dipping yeah. an apple into uh caramel sauce as he's uh recording his musings um i, I got he's, he's my favorite guy he's I'm, my favorite I'm one of them all about his poor dad going oh my uh, we have, yeah, you know, like shooting people was fine in nine, shooting Nazis was fine in 1940, but uh, Gen Zers have things to do today, God's sakes. <laughs> um, oh my God. Yeah, he, he may want to take judicial notice of the the uh, young men that were drafted in Vietnam, but probably didn't teach that at school. Um, right, let's take some calls. Matt Mount Greenwood. Like, I can't believe that guy's father, like, raised him the way he is. He, I, 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 I can't believe it. Oh, my God. The, the, the slapping the kid. My mother used to say, if you want a reason to cry, I'm going to give you a reason to cry. Every one of these putzes needs a reason to cry. I can hear Betty saying, John, John, stop. Yeah, right. Oh, my God almighty. I, I, I'm, I'm throwing up in my mouth, gentlemen. I'm sorry. I just read your column today, too, John. Great, great read. 
but uh, oh, this is this is. It, it would be funny if it wasn't true, guys. This is sad. Thanks for the call. Now, again, to be fair to Gen Z, I try to want both sides here. You know, there are Gen Zers too that are at the Naval Academy at West Point uh, in the service, uh, or they, that, that are or entrep- they could be teaching special teaching teachers, entrepreneurs, electricians. Yeah, yeah I know right. two of those. Right. So there's a lot of Gen Zers doing a lot of things, too. So that's what I'm saying. I said at the outset, what advice would you give them? Because this is a rite of passage for every generation. And just trying to assess if it's a little bit more pronounced in this generation, because mainly because of the poor education and the collapse of parenting, which is where I think uh, most of the the blame lies. But anyway, give me a grandson. Maybe we'll talk about down payment for a house. Okay, (sighs) I want the grandson. Boy, it's uh, it's all bartering in the cast household. Right. I got it. Uh, Evan, Northwest Side. Hey, gentlemen. Hey. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm a young man, 32. I also graduated from college. I'm also a father. And yeah, I did grow up in that same kind of mentality with uh, with a single parent, kind of thinking, oh, maybe I'm just entitled to do what I want, and had a reality check when I went to jail and also had my kids. So my advice to kids is just really know, figure out what the world is made of and how you can implement what you can out there without having to be a burden to anyone else. So wait a second, Evan, hold on, hold on a second. So, so, uh, so what did you go to jail for and how'd you turn it around? So when I was in college, um, I got involved with, uh, with narcotics okay. as a recreation and for selling. Okay. And I got caught up because I was kind of living that life of, Oh, look at me. I'm, uh, I'm doing the big thing and everything's great. And then I got caught and it was me sitting in that, in, in that, uh, that silence thinking, okay, well, I got to turn this around. Took me a while. But um, it was definitely just an impact of believing uh, these false realities of uh, thinking that college was the answer, and it really wasn't. I kind of wish I would have just gone into a trade or something like that, been a little more disciplined with myself besides, like, following the norm. But you're good now, family and all that, everything's good now? In a way, uh, it's still a struggle. I mean, I, I still have the, the record on my, yeah, I still have the felony charge on my record, so it is hard to find a job, but I do have a decent job now. Uh, I'm not doing, I would say, you know what, one thing I would say is don't bounce around a different job. Yeah. That's not a good idea at all. I don't know why kids think they're just entitled to, oh, I'll leave that job and go somewhere else. And was, No, that's not how it works. That's really not how it works. Very good. Thanks for the call, and good for good for you too for turning it around. All right. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, we want to establish a, that you're stable and you're, you give a job a time and you put your time in and you don't leave employers in the lurch. Sure, that's something people look at, of course. Uh, Tom and Algonquin. Hey, Tom. Hi. Go ahead. You're on. Hi. Uh, I want to respond to the young lady who wants to have her own business. Mm-hmm. You have no idea how much work it is. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I tell people this all the time. You know what's the biggest difference between when I work for somebody else and now I work for myself? 
when I work for someone else at 4.30 on a Friday, I'd look at something on my desk and say, eh, I'll do it Monday. Right. Now I do it Saturday night. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yes. unbelievable. It, you know, and, and, you know, people want to start their own business. But, you know, I only want to work 40 hours a week, <laughs> and I, I don't want to make any less money than I make now. Oh, what do you mean? I'm oh, and I want to have long w? lunches. I want to have a long Oh, lunch. my goodness. Boy, you know, life is, that will be so easy. Oh, they are so clueless. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Tom. Well, right. You think uh, you think nine to five is a scam, right? What are you going to think about doing eighty hours a week trying to get a business up and running? Right. Uh huh. Jessica Lamont. They need to get all of the instant gratification and learn that good things take time. Good things are hard. It takes twenty years to build a career. You're not going to buy your five hundred thousand dollar forever home. First time you go to buy a house, they they don't know it takes time. They need to learn that. I don't know where they forgot it, but Jessica, do they have something called starter homes? Do they still have that? They do. I they do. There are homes out there. There are two hundred thousand dollar homes out there. Do they need work? Do they need elbow grease? Yes, they do. But they don't want to buy them. They want to buy the perfect house and. $50,000 worth of furniture on credit to put in it so they look good. It, 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 I don't know what they're thinking. They come, out of, they come out of college with debt, and they instantly build more debt. Right. Thanks for the call, Jessica. Uh, Will Skokie. Hey, Will. Will. Go ahead. Hello, how you doing? Are you there? Yeah. Yep, go ahead, Will. Okay, sure. Yeah, I have uh, two daughters, and uh, the oldest one, she uh, went to the Naval Academy, and she learned the hard way um, that, you know, she says, oh, this is all BS in here. And I go, yeah, the world is full of BS, and you just got to work, <laughs> learn how to work with the BS. The young one, she and she's doing well. She, she just made lieutenant commander. But the young one, she wanted to be more badass than her sister. She went Marines, and uh, halfway through boot camp, she got kicked out because of... Uh, her, she's got uh, asthma and stuff like this. Oh, she came sure. out, she went to college, and uh, she's now working for a law firm, but she keeps complaining about, oh, I've got to have so many billable hours. And I go, yeah, because that's how you get your salary. You create uh, production for your boss, and you've got to create more production than you're worth. And it's, it's just a matter of, of slamming into the brick wall of reality, and uh, it works right. out. Right. Thanks for the call, Will. I mean, that the one girl who's drinking the coffee and saying, you know, I can't compete with people for those hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollar jobs. Yeah, you're twenty five with a, you know, sort of a BS marketing degree. You think somebody's going to pay you two hundred grand uh, a year or two removed from college? Okay, uh, Robert Bloomingdale. Wow. I mean, I've been working since the age of thirteen years old. I'm going to retire. At the end of next year, these kids today have no idea what work is, and they need to get a serious reality check, especially those ones that you are playing. I mean, holy cow, they're in trouble. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. They get it. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and John Cass in for Amy this morning. JohnCassNews.com 
Speaking of, we were talking about Gen Zers and some who think uh, working for themselves, starting a, uh, a small business is uh, something they want to do, but are already uh, overburdened by the nine to five workday. They have <laughs> no idea. And no time to work out, no time to club. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm hmm. Um, so it seems to me that that K through 12 education is even though it's not really a primarily a federal issue, just education generally is a, a real uh, mission field and political opportunity for the Republican Party. And I don't know that they're fully capitalizing on it at present, as some at the state level with the school choice movement advancing, but but not fully. I mean. What are we seeing when we're talking about uh, petulant Gen Zers as we were before the break, or we're talking about this uh, rank ignorance that you're seeing on college campuses from students and professors alike in the context of the Hamas terrorist attack? So many illustrations of this. Uh, a good piece by Eva, uh, Eva Moskowitz, who is the founder of the Success uh, Charter Schools, mm-hmm. Success Academy Charter Schools. Um, she... Um, Reminds us something here, too, because the conversation is always driven by spend from the left and then Republicans not wanting to be seen as, oh, what are you against kids, you against education, you against teachers, though they want to just keep keep the debate on the spend uh, angle that the left takes. Well, that's a mistake. System change is the real conversation here. That's what school choice is about. But it's bigger than that. Moskowitz writes, do you know we spend more than $800 billion annually on K-12 through government schools in America? Schools in the United States spend an average of $19,380 per pupil, which is more per child than all but one other developed nation. That's Luxembourg. Jesus. Really? Adjusting, adjusting for inflation, spending grew by 244% over the last 50 years. That's 6% of our GDP. Also more than many other North American and European nations, which average about 4.85% of GDP. So, Well, it's the, funded by homes. homes well, home it, primarily funded by property taxes right. in Illinois. Not every state does it that way. Indiana right. doesn't, for example. Mm-hmm. But, but, the, but the point is the overall spend. Mm-hmm. So the teachers need more money, more money. So uh, we spend more than just about every other nation. We've gone up at a 45-degree angle in that spend in real dollars in the last 50 years. And what do we have? Well, we have smaller class sizes. Uh, classes are too big. Down from 22 students per teacher in 1970 to 15 in 2021. We have higher high school graduation rates and lower dropout rates. More kids have access to computers and Internet than ever before. 97% of 3- to 18-year-olds. We need an iPad in every classroom. We got it. That all sounds like good news. So why are Americans... Falling behind globally, behind China, Japan, Canada, Poland, Slovenia, and many more. 36 countries outperform the United States in math at the high school level. They did slightly better in science. Reading comprehension, we're, we're 17, we're 12 in reading comprehension. But the gap between high performers and low performers widened. About one-fifth of American 15-year-olds so, scored so low on the uh, PISA test that it appeared they had not mastered the reading skills expected of a 10-year-old. One-fifth. Uh, where are we now, post-pandemic? Well, you know, that was a disaster, but it was a disaster before the pandemic. 
Only 25% of kids are doing math at grade level. Only 31% are reading at grade level. Nationally. And then you wonder, with the increasing politicization of, of, of schooling from pre-K through post-secondary, what fills the void? Well, that fills the void, political activism. And then you can't, you're, you're surprised from the billionaire set on down, you're shocked by what you see on the campuses of Ivy League schools and elite schools like Northwestern or Stanford, what you see from the professorate and the students alike. What you hear from Gen Zers who have this completely distorted view of what it takes to make it and be independent and successful doing something they like. Uh, for more on this and other issues, we're pleased to be joined by Renaissance Man. You can tackle anything. He's David Harsani. He's a senior editor at The Federalist. He's also the author of Eurotrash, Why Americans Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. David, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. What, what about just the, 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 the opportunity because of what's happened on college campuses and because of all the trans stuff and parental authority issues at the K through 12 level. What about this opportunity that's present to talk about how we do education in America writ large? Well, it's a, it's a major issue that I don't think we're taking advantage of on the right. You know, in Virginia, for instance, I think it was a huge issue for, for Yunkin, who is now a pretty popular governor in Virginia. Um, the first thing I think we need to do is stop calling it public schools and start calling it state or government run schools because that's what it is. And mm -hmm. then you get a better sense of what's going on in any kind of and I'm not saying we're a totalitarian society, but in any kind of society like that, you start with the children, you brainwash them, which is what happens in many districts, or most districts in some way. And then you send them to these hermetically sealed ideological you know, factories where you pump out credentialed dimwits, mostly in the elite schools. And uh, and then they, you know, these people who go to those schools then go to, you know, the State Department or they're your lawyer or, you know, these positions of power and uh, ruin the country. What about uh, editors in know. major newspapers? Yeah. Exactly. Well, you're going to be at a major newspaper. Yeah. So, you know, when you when, when they talk about like the anti-Semitism we see now, you know, when you have a Nazi standing in front of Disney, like afterwards, he goes back to making meth or whatever he does. But the other side, they go into institutions. They have the power and the reach. And I'm sorry to jump to that topic and segue there. But, you know, I think it's a pretty clear line for why that happens. A credential Dimwits, by the way, was the name of my high school band, Talking Heads cover <laughs> band. Uh, we killed with. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, so. Um, so. 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 I mean, in terms of Republican leadership on the issue, I mean, again, mostly state and local, but. You can certainly talk about it, uh, particularly when you're talking about college and how the federal government underwrites the student loans that send all these kids to amass $80,000 in debt to get some BS marketing degree. Um, you know, why, why especially like um, I, like a DeSantis is perfectly positioned to talk about this as he uh, sits on the most expansive school choice program in the country in Florida. And we just don't see I know there's uh, these geopolitical matters and taxes and this and that but nobody's sort of putting it together in a unified vision of what a k-12 education and and post-secondary education could and should be i think it's more complicated than a lot of people think in the sense yeah i remember this in colorado when i lived there you know a lot of uh let me put it this way that the most the only organization in america right now who wants and and fights for segregation are teachers unions and what happens is you have really a lot of people have good schools. They live in rich neighborhoods or 
or well-off, you know, middle-class neighborhoods, and they have good schools, and they're nervous about changing the system. So you have to really try to convince them as well that that uh, that it's a good idea to integrate schools and to let people have choice and let parents move their kids around. They feel like their schools are going to get worse. I mean, this is my personal, you know, experience in this. So maybe each state needs a different kind of vision. So I'm not really against doing it statewide, but I think that that you're right. There's an overall case to be made that presidential candidates should be making, that this is a good type of policy that the federal government would help states institute um, rather than strengthening teachers unions, which is what uh, the president does right now. Yeah, and it would be an opportunity for somebody to step outside of the pack at the presidential level, uh, like DeSantis, um, and drive a drive a completely different conversation rather than sort of be bogged down by, you know, parsing uh, DeSantis's answer on Ukraine funding versus Ramaswamy's versus Nikki Haley's. I mean, that just this just becomes white noise here, and and that's to the benefit of the front runner, Donald Trump, of course. What? Um, there's a prospect that this next debate coming up in early November, next Republican uh, presidential debate, may only have a, a handful of candidates, maybe only three on stage in terms of who qualifies and who wants to participate. Ramaswamy has said he may not want to participate because people were too mean to him in the last debate. So um, if it's Christie, Nikki Haley, DeSantis, what, does that provide a, a path to a more interesting primary campaign? Or do you think people just sort of... Uh, say, well, that just shows you how irrelevant this process is. The primary is over, Trump's the nominee, and let's just get on with it. Well, I don't want to be too cynical, but I just don't think these things matter at all anymore. <clears throat> Trump, you know, I, I think that, you know, personally, I think DeSantis has the best case to be president right now. But, yes. you know, that's not what people think. Most Republican primary voters obviously want Donald Trump. Donald Trump, you know, is doing the right thing. I mean, why should he debate anyone when he's up 50 points or whatever it is in, in those polls? And you have other candidates that split maybe the rest of those votes. So you never know how those votes would split anyway. Have any so, of you, have any of you uh, been intrigued by the support Nikki Haley's getting from National Review and Fox? It, it seems Fox has become the neocon network now, and, uh, and National Review is carrying her water. And I, I just wonder what you think as conservatives, because... I'm a conservative, and I don't see her as a con- as a conservative. I don't even know why she's running, but there she is, running. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think people are grappling to find kind of a consensus candidate other than Trump, meaning someone who can bring populists together with the you know older school, you know, more libertarian minded, I guess, or maybe even the neocons. I don't think Nikki Haley is that person. But, yeah, maybe because of what's going on in the world right now, they feel like she's better. I mean, I can't speak to it. I just don't think she's going to have a chance. And uh, so I don't really get that support for her either. But I, honestly, I just don't think there are many, you know, again, I just think DeSantis is the candidate who who's, I hate the, I don't support politicians. I just think right. when you look at just accomplishment and, uh, you know, the way they comport themselves in general, I just don't, I, it's it's a mystery to me why he doesn't have more support. But then again, the, the electorate's a big mystery to me. But she, so you agree that she is the neocon candidate? <laughs> well, certainly if you're a neocon, you're going to like her best for sure, yeah. 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 I mean, I wouldn't Although, say she's not I'm a conservative. Not, not I mean, she's had some conservative, <laughs> she's had some conservative policies in South Carolina when she was there. I mean, I think she's a, a school choice supporter and stuff like that. But I get your drift for sure. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, too, is like you say, they're, they're, they seem to, DeSantis has not been able to move. So now it's time to find somebody else who, uh, you know, is moving a little bit and maybe we can help her move more. And it fits some other boxes that uh, 
the Republican establishment likes. So when donors start to migrate, then, you know, then you have your media moment, too. Um, so if it, if it is if this is a fait accompli, Biden versus Trump versus RFK Jr., don't forget about him. Uh, the polling the polling is interesting on that, though, that Siena poll that uh, yeah. uh, came out this week um, where Trump is up five on Biden. Um, but if you include RFK, his lead expands to seven. And, and RFK's uh, percentage of the vote, RFK Jr., is not inconsequential. It, 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 those numbers uh, look very much like 1992 with it you know, being like 38 to 31 to 21. Um, the RFK Jr. factor, what's your handle on that? I'm a bit skeptical that he's going to pull any kind of those kind of numbers. I'm not saying he won't pull any, but, you know, as soon as people start highlighting him and saying, oh, remember that time you hung out with Farrakhan? You know, I, I think maybe some of that support <laughs> maybe goes away. So, you know, what happens a lot is you have candidates who have not had the spotlight on them. Who, you know, no one's done any digging on them. Trump hasn't come up with a nickname for them yet. You know what I mean? And uh, they uh, they do well in polls. But I'm pretty skeptical that that guy's going to pull a ton. And what makes me nervous is he actually, you know, I, I see some conservatives who, who like him, I guess, because of his vaccine position, whatever it is. Um, you know, I, I just don't think he has pro-like uh, numbers coming in and, and at the end of the day. But he does have money. I mean, he is raising a, enough yeah. money to stick around and compete. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he he will be somewhat of a factor. I just don't think. Yeah, I, I don't know. 20, I mean, what 18, I 20. Say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I agree with you. I think under I mean, it's fine when he's running against Biden, but under scrutiny when it's uh, when it's it's the uh, the main event, um, people uh, might make some different decisions. I what, agree. Dan, since you brought up the Siena poll, I'd like to ask uh, David, what do you make of the Siena polls look at immigration? particularly as it relates to minorities, to black voters, black Democrats, Latinos, et cetera, as they're dealing with the overcrowding that's coming from the opening of the borders, Biden's opening of the borders. How is that going to play? I think, I mean, I think people underestimate what a, what a big issue that was back when Trump first won. I think yes. that was the, the, the propelling issue for him actually. And, um, I think it will be now, too. I mean, it's a mess down there. And, you know, there are how can I say this? I think the presidential election is the farthest removed or, or the closest to your ideology, meaning locally you'll vote for wh- whoever helps you. But when it comes to the presidency, you're usually voting for your party, I think. But I, I mean, look at the Biden presidency. Nothing has gone right. Everything is a mess. He's a mess. I, I mean, when I see a Trump of five points or whatever. I totally believe it. I think Trump can easily win this thing. I'm not saying he will, but he could easily win this thing because we have a president who's completely incompetent, can barely speak. So um, I think immigration would be a big part of that. What's going on down there, I think, affects a lot of people. And when you start sending them to big cities, all of a sudden everyone's concerned. So Let's take a look that was Chicago. a great idea. Yeah. Chicago, New York. Chicago yeah. and New York. Chicago is, a, you know, I just did a piece on on the mayor of Chicago having a panic attack, actually two panic attacks. I think they required medical assistance, but I'm not quite sure. But uh, he's he's melting down, and the other mayors are melting down too. I'm sure Adams in New York is not happy. I think that Martha's Vineyard stunt was the best thing that ever <laughs> happened in this debate because it it, uh, it just showed the hypocrisy, frankly, 
And I think to many, you know, and scared a lot of people who live in nice places that they're going to actually have to deal with this problem as well and not just hire people to do their lawns, but actually have to deal with with everything else that goes with unregulated, you know, unfettered illegal immigration. Uh, Beyond just getting a speaker of the House, which was the first order of business, what, what is your sort of level of optimism about the kind of job that Mike Johnson can do and and the kind of representative he'll be of the Republican Party in the national stage? Uh, you know, when I first heard that, yeah, he sounds like a guy who like a European director in a European movie would name as an as the as the token American Mike Johnson, just like the most milquetoast guy ever. But I have to say, when I've seen him speak, uh, he seems he seems like he's going to be fine. I don't know. Um, I, I noticed Democrats were really mad that he was praying and believed in God and stuff like that. So, <laughs> of course, he, it's offensive. Yeah. More upset about that than they are about Ilhan Omar being in Congress or, you know, Hamas marches. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think the whole, you know, I just think they're kind of a mess, frankly. So anything they get done, I'm, I'm sort of like, well, that's impressive because I don't expect that much right now. But uh, he seems OK, I guess. I don't know that much about him, to be honest. David Harsani, senior editor, the Federalist, author of Eurotrash, Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. David, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Always. Thank you. And he joined us on the turnkey.pro answer line. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and John Cass, johncassnews.com, in for Amy today. And uh, Hey, Dan. John, you uh, heard at the top of the hour in the news, uh, newly installed House Speaker Mike Johnson is decoupling aid to Ukraine from aid to Israel. He's going to move $14 billion, yeah. $14 billion in aid to Israel, but he's not going along with the $106 billion that the Biden administration wants to put it all together and trying to bribe Republicans with some money in there for more border security personnel. Well, more border security personnel doesn't matter much if they're just doing paperwork as the borders are open. That's not providing any enhanced border security. I think most Republicans recognize that. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that Johnson said in terms of contemplating any additional aid for Ukraine is the Biden administration has to Tell us what the end game here is, and they haven't done that. And he's going to meet with Biden and team to try to get an answer to that question. Well, uh, University of Chicago poli-sci and international relations professor John Mearsheimer, Mm -hmm. uh, he recently was on Glenn Lowry, uh, Glenn Lowry's podcast, Glenn Lowry, the econ professor at Brown. And they discussed this. And John Mearsheimer said, among other things, discussed his fear of escalation in that uh, uh, war to repel the Russians and what the prospects are for escalation, what he's most concerned about. And uh, given what the reality on the ground is, in his estimation, he's trying to game out what happens if Ukraine gets overrun. Take a listen to what Mearsheimer had to say. That may inform some of the views on more aid to Ukraine. What is the United States going to do if 
in the more extreme case and a possible case, the Ukrainian military collapses and the Russians are overrunning most of Ukraine. What are we going to do? It's very important to remember how deeply invested we are in this war. Can we really afford to lose? Can NATO afford to lose? Anyway, I raise all of this because wow. they think there will be a serious temptation for us to get directly involved. And given you know the number of foolish moves that the United States and its allies have made with regard to NATO expansion, I wouldn't be surprised if we got involved. Do I think it's likely? No. But I think it's a serious possibility. So I like to say, I think there's a non-trivial chance that we would get involved if Ukraine is losing in a serious way. And I think at this point in time, that's much more likely than the Russians losing and the Russians turning to nuclear weapons. Uh, that which is his other fear of, of the pros prospect of escalation. If Ukraine was running roughshod over the Russians, was pushing them back the, uh, out of Donbass, then um, because the West has indicated they would not respond uh, with nuclear weapons to Putin's use of nuclear weapons, um, what that escalation could look like. If Russia's losing, Putin's desperate. He, does, he The West has said we're not going to uh, use nuclear weapons, yes. provide nuclear weapons for usage. Uh, Putin would be in, uh, incentivized to use them. Well, that seems less likely because in Mearsheimer's uh, opinion, the uh, counteroffensive launched in June has failed. And we're in a place now where it's more likely that Ukraine would be overrun. And the Biden administration has to recognize that. And the Biden administration has to, I mean, politically speaking, sort of a wag the dog moment, politically speaking, can the Biden administration for, uh, afford to see Ukraine fall before next November's election? Take a listen to Mearsheimer. The counteroffensive, which was launched on 4 June of this year, was a blitzkrieg. It was a clever strategy. It was designed to deliver a rather quick hammer blow to the Russian military and force them to the negotiating table where we would, in theory, get uh, a very good agreement, we meaning the West and the United States. The counteroffensive has clearly failed. Mm. It's actually been a disaster. What that means is that we're now engaged in a war of attrition. Uh, which was the case before the counteroffensive was launched. It's important to understand that we launched the counteroffensive, or the Ukrainians launched the counteroffensive, to get out of the war of attrition. Because I think the Ukrainians and the Americans understood that if it was a war of attrition, the Ukrainians could not win. But we're back into a war of attrition. So the $64,000 question is, who wins a war of attrition? And the answer is the Russians. And you say to yourself, why is that the case? Well, what matters the most in a war of attrition is the relative population size of the combatants. Because mm. how big your population is determines how many soldiers you can produce. And second, the uh, balance of artillery, how much artillery each side has. Because in a war of attrition, as we used to say when I was a cadet at West Point, what really matters is artillery. It is the king of battle. 
The conventional wisdom is almost everybody agrees on this, including people in the West and in Ukraine, that the Russians have somewhere between a five to one and a 10 to one advantage in artillery. And moreover, that that advantage is likely to grow in the future because the Ukrainians cannot produce much artillery. We don't have much artillery to give them and can't spin up the industrial capacity to produce large amounts of artillery tubes and artillery shells quickly. While on the other hand, the Russians are pumping out artillery tubes and artillery projectiles like crazy. So this advantage, which is somewhere between 5 to 1 and 10 to 1 in artillery, is going to grow with the passage of time. Not to mention the population advantage, 5 to 1, Russia to Ukraine. 312-642-5600, turnkey Dow Provincial line. 64636DA, turnkey Dow Pro text line. So on the one hand, we don't want Ukraine to fall in the hand of Putin. On the other hand, because we've sort of been half pregnant in uh, mm. the uh, support for Ukraine uh, and took it on a, a on faith that this counteroffensive, this blitzkrieg that Mearsheimer described would produce results that, at least in his estimation, it hasn't produced. I know there's some disagreement. We have a couple of problems. They can, we can't afford to lose, but we can't afford to have... Uh, open-ended support for Ukraine. We don't even have the resources uh, in artillery, much less um, they don't have the resources and manpower to win an, a, a protracted war of attrition. So what is one to do? Well, this is the reason why I'm here. This is the reason why I listen to your show, the reason why I'm on the show, associated with it, because you have people like Dan, you, Dan Proft, have people like, Mearsheimer on talking about this stuff. No other radio station in this region, in the Midwest, puts Mearsheimer on or would would dis- entertain a discussion of this magnitude and depth. And uh, that's why uh, I follow you, man, because this is a, the serious issue of the day. And I, I think that we can uh, afford to walk away from Ukraine because the American people don't want it. They don't want to su- to support the war in Ukraine. They don't they don't see it in their interest and no amount of uh Mitch McConnell war party uh drum beating will enter to, will get them involved. They don't want to spend money on it and they certainly do not want their sons and daughters going over there. Well, that's the that last part is the real concern that Mearsheimer raises too. Is if if his analysis is correct, and we can't stand it up, the, and if we can't stand up the industrial production uh, to provide uh, armaments, uh, artillery to Ukraine to help to to uh, allow them to fend off the Russians for a longer period of time, hoping uh, something would change in the spring, I guess, of next year, um, then. Boy, you've got a precarious position. You put this administration is in a politically precarious position, and you've got an administration full of expedient politicians who will choose political expediency over the interests of the American people, certainly the opinions of the American people. And that might mean American troops on the ground. Now, again, he says it doesn't think 
it, he doesn't uh, believe it will happen, but there's a non-trivial chance that it will. And this is something I, I hope Mike Johnson brings up in this conversation, too, that, you know, that is a red line. And so to Johnson's point, you have to tell us what the end game is, what not. It's not going to be, you know, 90 billion dollars at a time every uh, other week. You have to tell us what this is going to do and what we're going to do after whatever this, whatever you think this is going to do, whether it occurs or doesn't occur. John Cass, Dan Proff, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Open mic! Open mic Friday! Call in now! Open mic Friday! Yes, sir. That song needs a time, that time of the week for Open Mic Friday. Taking your calls, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, comments, compliments, concerns, criticisms, general crack pottery. We'll take it all. Open Mic Friday is presented by turnkey.pro, your small business partner. Visit them online at turnkey.pro. And we begin with uh, David Kolsak, the founder of turnkey.pro. And Kolsak's questions, as <laughs> we've come to know uh, David Kolsak yeah. kicking off of our kicking off our our open mic Friday. Uh, David, some thoughts to prompt more thoughts. Sure. Um, good morning, uh, Dan and John. Um, it is pretty ironic that your answer, your station is called the Answer, and I seem to be asking a lot of questions. I guess that's you know that's just the way it goes. Uh, but anyway, most people that know me know that I grew up above an apartment in our family funeral home uh, on, in Wheeling on Milwaukee Avenue. I was a kid that got on the bus. In the morning, carrying a stand-up bass with the bass sitting in the front row, or as we say in Chicago, front row. Um, and uh, I sat in the back with the rest of the kids. Uh, sometimes when I was ready for school, my dad would say, he'd be lining up a funeral or whatever, and he'd say, hey, Dave, let me take you to school. And that meant throw the string bass in the back of the hearse and have dad drop me off in his funeral director's suit right in front of all the other kids. And, you know, it was an embarrassing time, but it was cool at the same time. And I was always proud of my dad. I still am. But anyway. Like the monsters, like it. It was well. It wasn't that bad, you know. I guess we did have some characters in the family. Did that you play in the coffin room? Did you lock other kids <laughs> in the coffin room from school? Would we would scare them when they'd come in. Yeah. That was it. Was often a prom prank. People would come in and they'd want to like ask a date to prom and they'd get in a casket. It was very morbid, but it was fun. <laughs> kids had a good time coming over. Anyways, I, we two doors away was Hackney's, it, and we growing up, it was literally the place to go for us. No dinner, we went to Hackney's. No, you need ice, go to Hackney's. You need a drink, go to Hackney's. St. Patrick's Day, Hackney's. So everything was Hackney's. And the Masterson family was always great to us. They were a great family next door. It was like our own cheers, but everyone got along and there were plenty of regulars, right? It was a great thing. And for every Bears game and every major event, there was some way to gamble. Like gambling in the 80s and 90s was, was just, you know, was, everybody did it. Buying squares for the football game, the 13-run pool fantasy golf, and the local bookie at the end of the bar named Tuna right? Uh, there was gambling on sports and, and it was illegal, right? But nobody ever got busted. And I cried like a baby when Hackney's closed next door. It was, it was terrible. But anyway, you fast forward to today and gambling on sports is not only legal, but it's really encouraged. And I, first question is why are there so many pre, you know, pregame football and baseball shows talking about betting lines and passing yards and everything else. They used to just talk about, you know, positions and whatever, and, um, you know, why are there so many commercials promoting these gambling sites? You know, could it be that they want us now that they've got a piece of the action to become addicted to yet something else, right? Yeah. 
And how are these betting lines like so incredibly, you know, close? Like, you know, do they have some crystal ball? Are they great at predicting outcomes? I mean, you know, like last night, the the game, I had $20 on Tampa Bay plus nine and a half. They were down big all night long and they came back and miraculously covered. And they were like one pass away from winning the game. It was nuts. Like, do they have a crystal ball or or are the games fixed? Right. I, I have no idea. Think about U.S. sports betting. The market's like $87 billion last year, billion with a B. It's staggering. With that much money on the line, they have to get it right, right? So in in every sport, they're given challenges and camera angles and Uh. centralized security. You know, let's go to New York to make the final call. And sometimes, you know, it changes the momentum. It changes the outcome. Um, So why do they have to get it right on every plate? Is it because that's the amount of money that's bet? It's it's really – it's really more important for us to know why the guy got a first, if he got a first down, but it's not important. I know Dan, you're going to like that, uh, that we have that same exacting confidence in our elections. Like election day became election month and we still have a lack of confidence. And, and why is that? We have more confidence in sports. U.S. employs what? 4 million people, GDP of 25 trillion and roughly 0.03% of that GDP is sports gambling. But yet, we have all these drastic measures for to make sure we get those sports things right, but we don't have anything in control to to make sure that our U.S. dollars are controlled by elected people and not selected people. You know, again, everyday person has to say, like, well, you know, we should be, have more security. We should have it at least as much as they do in football games. The Romans once said, you know, give them circuses and bread and they'll never revolt. But, you know, clearly sports are a circus, and it dulls the minds of people like me, right, because <laughs> I'm entertained well. You know, the world is falling apart, as you guys were just talking about. And, um, you know, you could say that the media is another form of a circus. Are people still watching and believing what they see on mainstream media? I mean, remember the COVID death counter in 2020? And why is everything so full of drama and fear? And to wind up, you know, have you seen some of those mashups on Twitter or whatever it's called? Um, Literally, it's like the Brady Bunch on steroids where there's news anchors all over the the place in, in the United States saying the same words on different stations oh, in yeah. the same cadence, right? Right. It's, it's crazy. So have you seen that? And, and so have you ever heard of something called Operation Mockingbird? If you haven't, you know, you guys should look it up. It's fascinating. It started in the 50s. It's fascinating. Operation Mockingbird. Any, anyway, we've all got our circus circuses that direct us, you know, and distract us and keep us happy. And I guess my question today is what's your circus, right? Do you recognize it's a circus and just a distraction? You know, it's really tough to figure out what's real and what's not real these days, and maybe it's just time to turn off the te- television. So, um, uh, to a couple of things in response. One is, um, are you suggesting like the uh, CEOs of uh, DraftKings and uh, the casinos uh, that be put in charge of our elections? Would that inspire more? Would that inspire more confidence? No, um, no, no, no. I wasn't. I, no, I'm talking about officials. That, you know, I, I'd rather wow. have officials that actually care. Oh, and, yeah. And a yeah. New York room that actually had yes. replay and. You know, when people bring in boxes of ballots and cover up windows, I mean, that's that's the absolute opposite of what I'm saying. Refereeing yeah. and replay right. is in sports. That's that was just really the right. The parallel. That's and and an Operation Mockingbird was this uh, alleged uh, CIA plot to essentially um, spread the uh, government's line on the Cold War. Right. I mean, it was essentially to use. Uh, newsmen as uh, functionaries for the Central Intelligence yeah, Agency. Stories, yeah, planting yeah. stories, essentially which, planting stories yeah. to make them to make right. them believable. Right. 
and do we see do we do we see that today? <laughs> I mean, now now we have oh, yeah. now we have, I mean CIA. That was uh, kids' play compared to what these uh, big tech platforms have done. Now that we know documented Twitter files being the uh, right. perhaps the most uh, obvious example of that. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, fair Crazy point. Crazy world we live in. Thank you, David. As all you guys uh, as always. Day. All right, Colsack's questions. Uh, feel free to respond or comment on any of Colsack's questions as well as offer any of your own questions, comments, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Before we go to the phones, uh, John Cass, is there anything you want to get uh, included in the conversation before we do? No, I just, I'm I'm waiting for the general crack pottery. I'm eager for it. I always like crack pottery, too, mm-hmm. myself. Yeah, I do like the crack pottery. Uh, <coughs> Chuck, on the road, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Chuck. Chuck. Oh, yes, I'm here. Okay, yes, go ahead. Hi. Um, just a, a question. Uh, there's been a question about Mike uh, Johnson not having a track record at fundraising. Why can't or why won't Kevin McCarthy continue his efforts at fundraising and vetting candidates if he's truly uh, uh, committed to the principles that he's been talking about? Well, uh, that's that's okay. That that's a fair question or fair point. Thanks for the call. But nobody's saying that Kevin McCarthy won't. But here's how it works in the real political world: um, <clears throat> big dollar donors want to hear from the speaker. Right. Big dollar donors want to hear from the head of the caucus, mm-hmm. and so um, and 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 also Mike Johnson is not just going to outsource this to Kevin McCarthy. Um, you're the leader. Um, you're the point person in terms of putting together the the resources and help and and certainly with a lot of help, not just from Kevin McCarthy, but a lot of others, the entire caucus, frankly, uh, recruiting candidates, fundraising for candidates, defending candidates, uh, making decisions on rank order priority for possible possible pickups. I mean, this isn't. Um, uh, something that Mike Johnson would abdicate. If he would abdicate that role, then he would lose confidence and uh, lose the confidence of the caucus. He has to be the the material player and enlist the support of the rest of the caucus, his leadership team, and everyone else. He's got to uh, lead them where to they play want roles. To go. Yeah, yeah. Basically, there's no there's no real yeah majority, so he's got to lead them where they want to go. And I'm not right, and I'm not saying that he can't do that. It's just it's just a stating a fact that he's um, not doesn't have the track record. He hasn't been in the position that Kevin McCarthy has. And um, so it's an issue. It's a question. And he'll have to prove up over the next 12 months. Also, McConnell. You have one, you have a new speaker, but you have an old Senate. What is he? Leader, whatever. Minority. Yeah, minority leader. And, uh, you know, what's he, where, what's his game? What does he expect? What does he want to do besides take care of his wife's shipping company? Well, he wants to be Senate Majority Leader. So right. even if you don't like McConnell, the interests are aligned there to win Senate seats. Um, and sometimes he uh, picks good candidates and sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes there's spirited primaries. And, you know, we'll see what decisions are made. But, How does he um, get along with uh, Rand Paul, who's going to be headlining at your uh, Freedom Summit? Well, you can ask Rand Paul about that at the Freedom Summit. I'm sure I'm sure sometimes they agree and many times they don't. Uh, Ralph and Wilmette, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, guys. Nice to hear you. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, in answer to one of the uh, the news from the Holocaust denier, 
Um, so I should like to hear one of the uh, Holocaust experts I heard responding to all this was almost laughing. And he said that uh, at the Nuremberg trials, people gave a range of excuses all the way from, I didn't do very much in the camps and uh, I didn't kill anyone in the camps all the way up to, if I wasn't killing people, they would have killed me or they would have found somebody else to kill Jews. And he made the point that absolutely no one ever in all those thousands of people ever made the argument that it didn't happen. So anytime that you hear someone saying that yeah. it didn't happen, that's the best way to go. Thank you. Oh, that's a good point. Thanks for the call, Ralph. Uh, yeah, the Nuremberg, the, the, now, the now infamous Nuremberg defense, you know, I'm, they made me do it. If somebody didn't do it, I, if I didn't do it, somebody else would have. That uh, does not uh, exonerate you morally or legally. Uh, Nick, Northwest Side. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Um, if this situation in Ukraine is just going to be a nightmare because of the unfortunate situation in the Mideast, uh, of course, we've got to help Israel. We can't just let the people there who are the crazies who just want to kill the Jews and kill Americans. I'm Not just Americans there. Some will want to attack America itself. They've said so outrightly, like the Iranians. Uh, but if Ukraine uh, falls, it's already a problem, though, because uh, Hungary has agreed last year to pay Russia in rubles for natural gas. Uh, Slovakia recently had a, a new government installed, which is pro-Russian, and actually indicates it's anti-American. Uh, then you got Turkey, who uh, sometimes bickers about stuff. And uh, Hungary and Turkey are not uh, supporting as, as yet, because of certain conditions they want met, are not supporting uh, Sweden's bid to become part of NATO. Mm -hmm. So these countries, I believe the Article 5 uh, of uh, NATO requires everybody, uh, all the NATO members, to agree on, uh, not that you want to shoot on Russia in a war, but just that there's unity. All you need is one to not go for it. And so uh, this is going to be a big mess. It, all, it all starts with Ukraine falling and being completely overtaken by Russia. And I thank you for taking my call. Well, thanks for the call, Nick. Well, right, I and mean, that's something uh, I'm certainly not rooting for, but uh, th this is not about rooting for, wishing uh, that that wouldn't happen. This is a question of what is the most likely outcome, and is it possible to alter that outcome if it's a negative one, and what would that entail, and then are you willing to do what you think would be necessary to avoid that poor outcome? And that's the you know, that's essentially the commentary that Mearsheimer was giving. And, you know, it, because things have not gone well, they don't appear to be going well. And they're, uh, according to him and others, they're in this war of attrition that they wanted to avoid. That was the point of the counteroffensive. Um, there's going to be some very difficult decisions to be made if. Uh, it goes the way at some point that Mearsheimer suggests is more likely than not. Mm. This is, um, you know, why measuring twice and cutting once is uh, appropriate. And I, I don't know why people would have confidence in this administration after the uh, Afghan withdrawal, where there was no particular timeline, so you you weren't on a clock necessarily, you know, technically you could have put in all of the planning and logistical support, taken all the precautions required to avoid the catastrophe that was, and yet it happened anyway.
and the criticisms even uh, of this administration, even from conservatives who otherwise support continued funding of Ukraine, is that we haven't gone fast enough with enough to alter the balance of power in this conflict uh, earlier on. And now that's the reason we're here. And we've I've had that discussion with any number of foreign policy experts on this show. And I say, well, I, I, my my answer is, okay, well, fine. Let's say that you're right. Um, now what do we do? And the, 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 the crowd that supports the uh, open-ended funding of Ukraine, and perhaps even more if you get into sort of the Lindsey Graham world, um, they, they, they don't really give you a concrete answer. Okay, we're in a place we shouldn't have been in. It could have been prevented, but we're here anyway. Now what do you want to do? What does it entail to get to where you hoped we would be at this point, which, which ultimately is, because of course, Ukraine, repelling the Russians. The Ukraine funding the Ukraine war in Ukraine is their ticket to power. They were they lost control of the argument when Iraq backfired against them, and for years since, as many of us walked away from the Republican Party on that aspect. And now they have it, and they're going to—they're rolling it as hard as they can, and they're riding this horse. Well, certainly the I'm not riding it. I'm not. I'm not. With yeah. It. Well, I mean, certainly the 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 outcomes in Iraq and Afghanistan have um, created a lot of skepticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, and in part fueled the America First movement yes. within the Republican Party. And I, and I, I mean, I, I share the skepticism. I, you know, I, I was. Uh, um, more of a cheerleader uh, than I should have been in retrospect uh, back in the the early part of this century about those about you know particularly about the state building piece of it which was a, a fool's errand but but again you know you have to make an assessment not based on punishing neocons uh, or not based on assessing the motives of neocons and others who look at this as whatever. The war party argument, funneling their power, funneling their funneling money to their friends and so on and so forth, aggrandizing their power, funneling money to their friends and so forth. And you have to look at what's in the America's best interests from a national security perspective. What is the geopolitical environment in Eastern Europe, into Central Europe and potentially Western Europe if Ukraine were to fall, if, it, if Ukraine were to be overrun by the Ukrainians? What does that do to this burgeoning Russia-Iran access with China using both as allies of convenience. You know, this is this is truly multidimensional chess. And I just think that um, we don't have the, the, the conversation at the policymaking level in public that we should have to answer people's questions, to um, to to provide the uh, risk assessment that is informing the decisions that are being made. And so we don't have confidence and it leads to what you see happening in Congress right now. And then it devolves into name calling, you know, Oh, if you, if you don't support the open ended, you love Putin. Yeah. Putin, uh, apologists, so on and so forth. So, and then, so, so where does that get us? Doesn't get us anywhere. Certainly doesn't get us closer to answering the important questions. And when you're talking about the prospect and nobody will talk about this, maybe except for Mearsheimer talking about the prospect that some people, would consider sending American troops, and I'm not talking about special forces, I'm not talking about advisors, I mean sending American troops, as he said, direct engagement. Right. Um, boy, you better be transparent, and you better start talking publicly, 
before you start putting American lives on the line in a big way. But this administration is panicking on a variety of fronts. And I just don't know when when President Obama has decided to pull the pin on Ukraine or not. Glenn in Orlando. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, I'd like to see a reality show where socialist college students are sent to the country that resembles their political desired political system and uh, and left to survive for a few months. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the call. Maybe maybe we start doing like a cultural exchange. Uh, uh, One vetted uh, Venezuelan migrant comes here and one uh, graduate of Northwestern goes there. I, I kinda of, there's something there's something to that. I like that. Somebody that uh you vet and says and you was gonna come here and wants to work and you know Maybe uh, has maybe has like killed that. zoo animals and eaten them. Yeah. Well well right. I mean you know, fleeing uh the Maduro uh autocracy, uh, like so many have fled repression. Um right. and and then yeah, right, send somebody with, you know, fashionable views that's part of the campus uh, Marxist organization, send them to Caracas and see how they enjoy the experience. Yeah, there's something to that. I wonder how many would be really willing to put their ideas to that test. I doubt very many. Lou, Southwest Side. Oh, yeah. I, thanks for the call. Love your show, Dan. I like. I want Wednesday to, to see police state. I encourage all you listeners out there who listen to Dan, go see the movie. It's great. That's the new Dinesh D'Souza movie. Right. You talked about taking your guns. They'll get your guns in no time. They can do anything they want to. They put you in masks. They made you go to get a shot. What they want is your liberty. Go see the movie. Thanks for the call. Thanks for the call, Lou. Well, um, per Lou, uh, for those who missed it uh, earlier in the program, uh, this is what uh, our vice president, one Kamala Harris, Reparation H, uh, had to say at a state lunch yesterday where she was entertaining the PM of Australia about the uh, massacre in Maine and what Australia's experience should mean to the United States. In our country today, the leading cause of death of American children is gun violence. Gun violence has terrorized and traumatized so many of our communities in this country. And let us be clear, it does not have to be this way, as our friends in Australia have demonstrated. And with that, then. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, good. Now we know. So let's put that to the test. Let's. Right. Um, let's include that into the political discussion for for 2024, which is uh, Kamala Harris just indicated that Australia is a model that we should follow. What was the Australian model? Mandatory gun buyback, the 650,000 weapons, which is maybe 20 percent, 25 percent of the weapons in Australia. Estimated that there, well, there was no refusal. Well, there was man- mandatory buyback. No. What, what happened then? There, you're. you're the guns are going to be taken. It's this eminent domain. It's just, this is, uh, to put it in an American context, um, no, I refuse. Well, it's going to be taken, and here's the compensation you're going to get. That's what it was. So let's do that here, according to Kamala Harris, and also what Australia did 
is ban semi-automatic weapons. So, let, fine, let's let's put it to a vote. Raise your hand if you're with Kamala and the Democrats. I like that issue for Republicans. But they should seize on that. Should seize on what she said. Matt in Oak Lawn. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, hey, Matt. So, John, John, this question for you. I have a customer who's Greek that knows you and your family pretty well. And I was telling him last week that I was listening to you and your brother Nick on the podcast. He said that Nick is one of the toughest Greeks in Chicago, and he's a martial arts expert. And he said the guy's a, he's a bad dude. Can you indulge us in this? <laughs> you know, he's, does he have a license to kill, John? He's well, for the call, Matt. He is uh, a Renaissance man, right? He he's well read, as you know from listening to him being interviewed with Dan and me. Yeah, mm-hmm. but. Um, Yes, he is the baddest dude in Chicago. He did uh, 50-man kumite, which means uh, battle, full-contact battle with 50 black belts in a row, 50 in a row, one down, the next down, the next down, until he was done, knocking all of them down. I never never saw anything like it. 50-man kumite. He's Kyokushin, Kyokushin Kaj. Kai Japanese hard style karate, and uh, he's been training with that all his life. Uh, well, okay, since he's your brother, well, since your brother is you know have the, has these uh, Bruce Lee slash John Wick skills. No, he's not like it's not it does it's not like that. He doesn't want to do fancy moves. He'll just kill you with. His okay, hands. well, all right. So, so maybe he can be our Charles Bronson in Chicago. Come on, Jake. Let's finish it. You should why have one on the why, show. Why don't we just green light him? Right. We're going to unleash. Him. We're gonna let, forget forget all this stuff. More police, whatever. We're just going to unleash Nick Cass on the city. Just call him Mister Majestic. Is that his uh, stage name? No, that's uh, Charles Bronson's. Oh name. yeah, right. Yeah. Very good. All right. Yeah. Maybe we've got a solution to the crime problem in Chicago. It's a lot better than his other nickname, which was Hen Killer. Because he shot a couple hens out of the air by mistake when he should have been shooting just cock pheasants. But that's stick another to the, story. Stick to the hand of the hand. Yeah. Right? Uh, Steve and Niles. Yeah, I, I'm watching TV and the commercials, and it came to I came to the conclusion, if you want to sell something, use scare tactics. Another thing I want to say, as a voter... You have no you have no say so because the politicians override you. That's all I want to say. Thanks for the call, Steve. Disagree, uh, Steve. Tom Blue Island. Tom Blue Island. Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, John. Always good to hear you. I like to consider myself almost straight down the line with everything Dan Proft is politically. I don't think I've ever wavered very much, uh, except for something he said about a week ago, and I wasn't able to get in last Friday. The bastardization of the sounds of silence (laughs) by Simon and Garfunkel, by that disgusting remake by Disturbed. Dan, I've never agreed with you, disagreed with you more in my life. Some knucklehead here in Blue Island plays that remake of that song in a, in a local tavern over here, and because of it, I stopped going to the tavern. It's so annoying. 
Well, Tom, I'm sorry we have these creative differences. Is Dan uh, going commie on us? And we didn't it's, know it's not commie. Do we have we have that David Draymond's? Uh, he's the lead singer of Disturbed. His uh, uh, a little a snippet from his rendition of uh, of Sounds of Silence. This goes out to Tom and Blue Island. Come on. You don't, don't the, you, look. The power of that voice. I, you don't I like, remake. You don't remake. I agree with the caller. What do you, you mean don't you don't remake re- that? And you don't like remake Zeppelin. It, well, it, it's it, the same it gives, thing. It leave gives Zeppelin a little, alone. Leave that. Oh These guys are so, so so traditionalist. Get with the times. A little bit of a of a metal influence rendition no, that, that shows wanna, respect. This is like uh, complaining about the remake of Fast Car. I don't even know what that is. Tracy Chapman, the remake of Fast Car, and was this? Oh, it's cultural remake appropriation. Remake suck anyway. Original, old school. Come on. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you think of movies, I, I think there are some covers of songs that are better than the original. I don't want to see a remake of Reptile, which is on Netflix right now. I want you to go see it, watch it. It, it was only okay. Even though I love Benicio del Toro, it was only okay. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really like the casting of Justin Timberlake there. Of what? I didn't like the casting of Justin Timberlake in the remake. See that in, in that Reptile? It's that. Is it a remake? Is it a remake? No, you you would say Reptile. You reptile. said Reptile. Yeah, I thought it was an I, original film. Yeah, I think it. No, I think it is original. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to think of. But I didn't like the casting of Justin Timberlake. But in terms of remakes, thinking of remakes that were better than the original, it's tough to think of one in a movie. But there are, there are definitely songs that the remakes are better. And I'm not saying that the Disturbed remake was better than the original Sound of Silence, but I thought it was an interesting arrangement. And I, that metal infusion, I, I mean, that's when you cover a song that you you're doing failed. Res- Look, respect. Dude, you failed. Back off. You're on the verge of commie with this thing. Mm. Don't go there. Mm, I'm trying I'm to think of it. what was. I think we've done this before. The remake that was better than the original. There's no I'll, such s- thing. Song or movie? I'll tell you. It's every, everything. The first iteration of well, something is always no the better. There's no better song than the song of Roland. Okay. We don't want to remake. It was mm. so good the way it was. Let's think about that. <laughs> Ralph and Rantoul. Yeah. Good morning. That last bit kind of reminds me that I. Uh, by the way, it's always good to hear your voice, John. Um, that last bit reminded me of. Uh, I need to find my old CD of the Sam Kinison bedtime lullabies so you can <laughs> your child yes. to sleep. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So I got a good remake. I got a remake that was better than the original. Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. There you go. Um, That was pretty good. So on ruminations from Ralph this Friday, um, I another segment. I am, yeah, I'm trying, trying. Uh, I've been trying to solidify some of the mushy-headed college brains that I'm currently engaged to try to do something with something. (laughs) And yesterday we had a really interesting discussion about. Uh, pricing of drugs and the whole pharma business, and I'll skip all the details, but because uh, we don't have time. Uh, but the uh, the the main gist of it is most of these kids are completely saturated with these socialist thoughts of government price controls and all that kind of stuff. Right. Now, when I turned the tables on them, though, and I said, "Okay, fine, you're all going to go out. You're going to be big bosses here because you all got big brains." 
So um, nothing like ridiculing what, them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what? A, who are you going to appoint to actually uh, regulate your salaries so that you can be capped in what you're going to be earning? Ooh. And and how should that work? How, how should we regulate the ability for you to make money? And then the, when when did the tears start? Just a lot of blinking. You could hear the blinking. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of blinking, blinking, not a lot of talking. Yeah. <laughs> Did anybody come up with a clever rejoinder? No, not a single one. Uh-huh. No, a lot uh, of blinking. And then I said, well, you know, as you ponder that in your big regulator brains that you want to unleash on the rest of us what if what if what if i end up regulating your salaries you're going to like that because i'm not a socialist you know and uh so yeah it's um i i i don't think my contract's going to be extended because i'm sure by the student reviews are going to be how the hell did this capitalist ever get admitted to the ranks of our business school that's a toxic classroom that uh Ralph has there. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that. Nice teachable moment. Well done, Ralph. I think it's a good feature, Ralph. Keep Ralph's Ruminations? Yeah, Ralph's Ruminations. Or more like um, uh, Stories from the Front, Ralph in the Classroom. Right. Uh, Dawn in Naperville. You should have a new segment there with Ralph. That's an idea. Yeah. But anyway, so, uh, John, I want I thank Paul for Nick and his service, but I want to thank you more for raising a son that decided to go into special education. That is, um, says a lot about you and your family. But I, I wanted to, you know, there was an so. independent journalist that did an, uh, some really deep diving into why our kids aren't reading. So, for the, you know, for those of us who have kids who, you know, live it, you know, we just, we just, at the end of the day, want our kids to be able to read. But we have to, unfortunately, do a lot of digging to understand why. And when you realize why, you're, you know, literally your head explodes because there's so much politics involved. And you follow the money. And that's what it's all about. But there's a podcast called um, Sold a Story. And for those that really want to learn why our kids aren't reading... That is, a, is your mind is going to explode at how the adults who are in charge literally don't care about our children. So follow the money, and I'll tell you what, there, President Bush tried to fight, and I wish he was more open about how he tried to fight. I, I didn't know anything about it until my own experience. But the Democrats killed the funding for literacy in our education schools. It's absolutely disgusting and as a matter of fact there's another podcast called uh, quickly Don. reading all right do you Signs want, do you want kids call, to Don. read do you want kids to read mom and dad read if mom and dad read and the kids see mom and dad reading then guess what they'll be readers That's chuck and delavan 15 seconds chuck hey good job uh good job john hey get up, come up on get on snake road head over to the getaway and get yourself a big breakfast if you get here before one and then <laughs> Go over to Pierce's Farm Stand and get some of them wonderful donuts and get your pumpkin and then head back to Illinois. Talk to you guys later. Thanks, Thanks Chuck. Man. Open Mic Friday, sponsored by Turnkey.pro, your small business partner. Visit them online at turnkey.pro. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast, sponsored by Signature Bank.
Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. 